Welcome this afternoon. We have in Ray LTL Management LC, uh, numbers 22-2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2011. And in connection with the uh, oral arguments today, I had told council previously that we would probably go a bit longer than the two hours. Uh, that said, uh, once upon a time we had an oral argument, we started in the morning in a case called combustion engineering. And it, we went from about 9.30 till about 5.30, 5.45. And I didn't realize we didn't, uh, I was reminded years later that we only took two 15-minute breaks, which was uh, not fair. I, uh, Seth Waxman argued, and uh, he told me that, and somebody was with him at the time. Now, Judge Craig Goldblatt said that is exactly right. And I didn't realize that Mr. Waxman doesn't eat on the day of oral argument. And so in the afternoon, one of my law clerks was feeling a little faint, went and got some M&Ms, and she's sitting over there and she looks at Mr. Waxman and Mr. Waxman looks at her and they both go open their hands and each had M&Ms in their hands. <laughs> so uh, I've learned my lesson. What we will do is uh, we will not go past five o'clock today and we will take a break after the first hour or so so that uh, everybody can uh, get some time to regroup. And also if somebody wishes to have a break in, Sooner than that, just give me a little bit of a high sign. And we'll go from there. And with that, uh, why don't we begin with Mr. Lampkin? And I've promised the Mr. Lampkin and Mr. You come on up, Mr. Kotchel, that similar to what the Supreme Court has been doing the last few years, we'll have two minutes of uninterrupted time to, at the beginning of your argument. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. If I may reserve 15 minutes for rebuttal. You certainly may. For more than a century, companies facing genuine financial distress have done what companies like Johns Manville did. They submit themselves and their assets to the bankruptcy court and to the code's requirements and creditor protections. This is an effort to do the opposite. In LTL's words, to put TALC-related claims through the Chapter 11 reorganization without subjecting the rest of the assets of JJCI to bankruptcy procedure and to enjoin suits against 670 non-debtors, including affiliates, even though they have independent non-derivative liability. That subverts at least three, four different core bankruptcy principles. First, if J&J or JJCI had declared bankruptcy, priority rules would require creditors to be paid in full before equity gets anything. But here, J&J &J and JJCI operate outside bankruptcy with old JJCI's assets, paying billions in dividends to equity to shareholders. Last week, J&J &J announced a $5 billion stock buyback, more for equity. But talc victims alone are mired in bankruptcy as they die. Old JJCI's trade creditors are compensated in the ordinary course, but the disfavored creditors, talc victims, sit languishing in bankruptcy. A clearer subversion of the priority rules that ordinarily apply is hard to imagine. Second, debtors in possession management ordinarily have a powerful incentive to try and emerge from bankruptcy as quickly as possible so they can get on with their ordinary operations free from bankruptcy supervision. But here, J&J &J and JCI, the tortfeasors funding all of this, 
have no such interest in SWIFT emergence. They operate all JJC's assets outside of the bankruptcy code, free and clear of bankruptcy court supervision, paying who they want, while TAL claimants alone are in bankruptcy. LTL has no incentive. It exists only for bankruptcy. No operating business, no transactions to engage in. You need to only look at the three other two-step bankruptcies to understand exactly what happens to these incentives. Before bankruptcy, for example, Bestwall had resolved 15,000 asbestos claims. Now, five years in, not one claimant has received compensation during bankruptcy. We have no approved plan, and all the official committee representatives alive at the case's asset, outset have passed away. <laughs> Worse, the delay benefits LTL and JJCI and, and Johnson & Johnson. As TALC victims can only get more desperate, they can only get more likely to cave. Each day they face unreimbursed medical expenses and they get closer to their own deaths. Is your principal argument that there is not a proper bankruptcy purpose or that the debtor here is not in financial distress or what? So the answer is it's not a proper bankruptcy purpose because evading the bankruptcy code principles is not a valid bankruptcy principle. As this court pointed out in SGL, those who seek relief in bankruptcy have to comport with the underlying bankruptcy code principles. And when the bankruptcy is established for the very purpose of evading the ordinary bankruptcy procedures. And by the ordinary bankruptcy code principles, you mean what? Or I need, for example, what I started out with, which is the priority rules. This is, a, this is structured so that all of the dividend, all the dividends, all the equity can be paid, while one category of claimants Tell creditors sit in bankruptcy and don't get paid. Another principle is that you have to have incentives to come to the bankruptcy to come forth a, a reasonable plan in order to emerge swiftly. But the opposite is true when you take all the operating assets, all the businesses, and you can operate them outside bankruptcy. And the only people who are mired in bankruptcy are the tell claimants. You're, you're referring a, to economic relief for the victims. Uh, yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And the ordinary principle is. Under the absolute priority rule, the ordinary rule is no equity gets paid until clay, until creditors are paid. And we have the exact opposite going on here. How was that economic relief uh, appropriated? I'm sorry, Your Honor? How was that economic relief uh, delivered to the victims? So in the ordinary tort system, that victims bring their lawsuits and they either settle or they go to trial and they get relief. But they're allowed to proceed and try and seek that compensation through the system that 50 states have used for two centuries to compensate victims of misconduct. Okay, but right so you're now, saying, you're saying bankruptcy does not allow that, that to happen. Well, bankruptcy delays it while we're going through all the plans and trying to come up with it. And right now, if you look at how it works, when you have these two-step bankruptcies, it goes for, for, for best of all, five years with nobody getting compensated, no plan, and everybody dying in the meantime. By contrast, if you go, if you don't separate it, people have, if you don't separate your liabilities and put them off into one entity, an artificial entity with just these talc liabilities, and you instead have your liability, the people with the liabilities and the actual companies in bankruptcy, then there's an incentive to go forward and come up with a plan so people actually get compensated and get compensated promptly because management wants to emerge from bankruptcy. But right now, there's no incentive actually to do that for J&J &J and JJCI because they're operating old JJCI's assets, famous brands, Avino, Tylenol, and the like, free and clear of bankruptcy's op, uh, requirements. Instead, the only ones who are sitting in bankruptcy are the tout claimants. They pay their, their ordinary trade creditors. No problem. Pay them as, they, as money comes due. 
Only the tout claimants sit in bankruptcy. And it's just in that sense like SGL, where you've just taken one set of creditors and put them at a disadvantage, tout victims, and everybody else proceeds as before. If, if LTL were formed in 1979 to hold the talc products, so instead of it going to baby products, it goes to LTL. And LTL operated for a number of years, but now is in the process of doing, in effect, an orderly liquidation. Would you have a problem? So I think that our the issue we have in terms of the evading the structure of the bankruptcy code and all the principles of the bankruptcy code, that would be a very difficult argument to make. Because once you take an entity and you operate it and you have a legitimate business purpose for the structure that the entity has, and you're operating it for a number of years, then that's a legitimate non-bankruptcy purpose. Where you cross the line is where two days before you declare bankruptcy, you do a divisive merger in order to put the top claimants into bankruptcy alone and take the assets, the operating businesses, the valuable brands of that former company and put them outside bankruptcy. And it's solely for the purpose to ensure that towel claimants are treated one way and all the assets are outside the bankruptcy. When you do that two days before bankruptcy, I think that clearly crosses the line. So it sounds from what you're saying is, <laughs> you're saying it would be a different argument, but it sounds like if they had done that in 79, ran the company for a number of years, ultimately decided they couldn't go forward, do a liquidating 11, it would be acceptable an acceptable bankruptcy purpose in that particular circumstance. Is that correct? So I would not be able to argue today that this is an evasion of bankruptcy purposes because clearly it was done for a purpose not of evading bankruptcy. It was done because that was a logical way to operate the business in 1979. It was operated. In, in so, and then you're saying at the other end of the spectrum, what they did by forming on October 12, 2021, filing two days later, uh, it, it doesn't work. When where is the line that is crossed in your view? So I think the line is when the sole purpose is not a legitimate business purpose of this is a logical way to operate the company, but the sole purpose is to disrupt, to subvert, to frankly pervert the bankruptcy code, to evade its ordinary principles. I think that crosses the line. What, and what, here do, we the, make, what do we make of the timing here? And what I mean by the timing is, as I understand <clears> it, about four <throat> months after the Supreme Court denied certain Ingram, LTLs formed, and uh, shortly thereafter, the day after the, they, they filed for bankruptcy, shortly thereafter. Well, what do you make of the timing here? So, Your Honor, I think it was the timing is clear that, based, in essence, J&J had felt failed. And they said this we felt failed by the tort system. And so they went to another system they thought would be more favorable. They went to bankruptcy. But the problem is, you, if they want to evade the tort system and move to bankruptcy, if they have financial distress, and I know that's disputed, and if they have other legitimate purposes, that's fine. But they also don't want to actually face the usual bankruptcy rules because rather than just taking, we have a distressed tort feeser, JJCI or J&J, &J, and we will put it into bankruptcy, which is the ordinary way of doing it. That's how it was done in Johns Manville. That's how it's been done for 200, well, 100 years since we've had something like a chapter 11. Rather than do that, they did something fancy and they said, we're gonna take the tout claimants alone. They're gonna go into bankruptcy by themselves and they're the only creditors that will be stuck in bankruptcy. The assets, these businesses that are producing valuable goods with famous names, those are gonna stay outside bankruptcy. And that subverts everything that bankruptcy is supposed to do. In fact, there's a, if I go to the third point, it's that you know the usual rule in bankruptcy is the bankruptcy court has supervision over the debtor's operations to make sure those operations are working for creditor benefit to enforce fiduciary duties towards the creditors. But if you look at appendix page 4463, J&J &J has now announced it's actually gonna spin off its consumer products division effectively is spinning off JJCI. Now, 
if J&J or JJC, I had declared bankruptcy, the bankruptcy court under section 363 would have authority over that non-ordinary course. Creditors like the tout claimants wouldn't be able to have notice and an opportunity to be heard. But because they've shifted everything to a new entity and they've only put an artificial entity, a concocted made for bankruptcy entity into bankruptcy, none of those protections apply. There's no ability for the bankruptcy court to look and say, yes, you're spinning off JJCI. Let's make sure that we put everything in escrow. Let's make sure we do something to make sure that all those funds are available for the creditors who, for whom they, they, they should benefit. Your, your concern is, is principally for the talc victims, is that, is that Absolutely, right? Your Honor. And, and <clears throat> your suggestion, if I'm not mistaken, is to take them out of bankruptcy? Is that correct? To take, them, to take those uh, talc victims out of bankruptcy, they should not be subject to the uh, That's right, bankrupt because, bankruptcy requirements? Because this is not a good faith bankruptcy, because the purpose of the bankruptcy by its terms is to evade the usual bankruptcy requirements, the bankruptcy should be dismissed. Now, there's a second question. So, what, so it's a bankruptcy to avoid bankruptcy? Pardon? It's a bankruptcy to avoid bankruptcy. Is that what you're saying? This is exactly what it is. It's a bankruptcy des to, designed to avoid the purposes and principles of bankruptcy. It's been gerrymandered in a sense so as to place only one class of creditors at risk. You, you were mentioning the second question, but let me ask you, if we, get, if we come to the conclusion this was not done in good faith, this is bad faith filing, do we need to get to the second question on the stay? No, Your Honor, because the mandatory requirement under 1112B is if it's not, if there is cause, the court must dismiss it, says it shall dismiss. <clears throat> so if this is not good faith, the standard and only remedy is dismissal. Now there is an unusual circumstances exception, but there's requirements that have not been met. One of them is that there is good cause or a good, good justification, and there's simply no good justification for a bad faith bankruptcy. And second is that there has to be a cure in a reasonable period of time. And I think when the entire bankruptcy is structured so that talc victims are on their own in bankruptcy and all the other creditors are out bankruptcy, outside bankruptcy, when the structure is set up so that talc victims are bankruptcy, but all the assets are outside bankruptcy, there's no cure there that someone come up with. And I don't think that just the bankruptcy court ever suggested there could be a cure. If you, if you were in the shoes and you call it old JJCI, I probably just call it for the sake of people here in the audience, old consumer. Uh, so you have Johnson and Johnson, Johnson and Johnson consumer, which took over baby products. So let's, so consumer doesn't go in and keeps the other, uh, items like, you know, Avino, uh, Tylenol, et cetera. And you separate out, it's like good bank, bad bank back in the late eighties when you had, uh, coming in on a Friday night, you separate everything out and you open the bank up on Monday. In light of the verdict in the Ingham case, which I think surprised a lot of people, even though it was re ultimately reduced, what would you have advised to do if you were representing J&J, &J, consumer? So I think my answer would be the answer that all the companies have confronted for, in the, for a long time, which is if you're genuinely in financial distress, you can take your company to bankruptcy. If you're not genuinely in bankruptcy, excuse me, in financial distress, then you may continue your fight. Yes, you got a bad result in, in Ingham, but look, after Ingham, what did J&J &J tell its, its investors? After it was denied, it said the facts were, quote, unique in cases not representative. That's at appendix four, excuse me, 4404. After the denial in Ingham, what did it tell the investors? That liabilities were, quote, not expected to have material adverse effect on the company's financial position, appendix 4506. And what did it tell the court about, what did LTL tell the court? It reiterated that there was, in light of the liabilities, quote, 
no likely need of the debtor to invoke the funding agreement, so that's supposedly $61 billion, to its maximum amount or anything close to it. That's at Appendix 3747. This is probably the first planned major bankruptcy, at least the first I've ever heard of, where if you're looking for indicia of financial distress, you don't find any business executive. You don't find any documents at J&J or JJCI before the bankruptcy saying, wow, we're financially distressed. We're heading for insolvency. The first time you see that is in the bankruptcy. And where is it coming from? It's coming from the lawyers. When you look at financial distress, are you looking at old consumer and LTL or just LTL? So I think that the proper answer is since we since we're, if we indulge the facade, the LTL is a legitimate entity to put into bankruptcy. And mind you, you have to raise that's, your voice just a tad when you pardon? raise your voice just a tad. So yes. So if we if we indulge the notion, one that I wouldn't accept, that it's okay to take LTL and put LTL into bankruptcy. I think the answer is you have to look at LTL's liabilities because that's the chosen one, the one they've chosen. And you would ask, can LTL is it in suffering financial distress? Um, basically, live live by the live by the LTL, die by the LTL. They've chosen to designate something LTL, claim it's a separate entity, push it into bankruptcy with just the talc victim claimants. Well, then you're looking for financial distress. You're going to just look at LTL. But I thought your initial concern was that the optics aren't right in breaking off and keeping out of bankruptcy good company while putting into bankruptcy bad company with the liabilities. That's exactly right, Your Honor. And that's why if you're going to indulge the notion, but that's that, the key thing. Doesn't that sound as if you're taking old consumer into account? It's almost like I kept wondering why you didn't somebody didn't file like a fraudulent conveyance action. So, Your Honor, you know, down the road, if we're legitimately in bankruptcy, there are remedies for certain individual transgressions. But the fact that there are remedies down the road for individual transgressions doesn't make an otherwise bad faith bankruptcy a good faith bankruptcy to begin with. Good faith is a threshold requirement at the outset. Mm-hmm. When the entire structure of your bankruptcy is designed to evade traditional bankruptcy requirements, traditional priority rules, supervision over spinoffs, all the things that courts do to make sure that the money is there for creditors, when it's designed to do that, well, it's just not a good faith bankruptcy. You don't even get to something like a, a fraudulent. Let me go back to actually. financial distress and litigation for a minute. Opp- opposing counsel makes much of the fact that there are 38,000 plus um, claims being filed or have have been filed and more coming with respect to the TAC litigation. Can fear or, or the, the, the cost of this litigation qualify as financial distress? So, Your Honor, I don't think the supposed efficiency of bankruptcy counts. I think the court has said that in cases like SGL that that isn't thinking that you're going to be more efficient in bankruptcy doesn't count. But even so, that still doesn't tell you whether or not it's not, not so much more efficient, but less exposure. Or is the exposure the same? Yeah. So I think, Your Honor, the, the notion that if one is going to be in financial distress, that is the threshold you need, immediate financial distress. The notion that you can just reduce your your liabilities from yay to lower isn't a sufficient basis. And so the real question is looking at uh, LTL, or if you want to <clears throat> indulge the fiction and go back to JJCI as the bankruptcy court do, was there legitimate financial distress that they were not going to be able to make their payments, that they really had a need to go into bankruptcy, which is powerful medicine. People don't get paid. Cases, 40,000 cases around the country get stayed. That's powerful medicine. You have to have some significant showing there. And we don't think they got there. But even apart from it, if there is financial distress, 
that just reinforces my first point, which is if there's financial distress, that's all the more reason you want the traditional bankruptcy protections to be in place. If there's financial distress, you don't want but, money. But going it sounds like what you're saying, you want the traditional bankruptcy protections to be in place for old consumer. Exactly, exactly. Because if old consumer and, you know, as LTL is telling us, you know, even but you just said that you're looking primarily at LTL in connection with this case and old consumers kind of off to the side. So we, we, we would for financial distress look to LTL. But remember, what is supposedly funding this bankruptcy? It's an unsecured funding agreement backed by J&J &J and JJCI. So if they face legitimate financial distress, there's every reason to be worried about not supervising what they're doing. Every reason to believe that they shouldn't be paying equity ahead of injured talc victims. Well, if you're, if you're a claimant, isn't the only thing you're really concerned with is that they pay up if they, as to what they say they'll pay up for? No, Your Honor. I think who gets paid first is critically important. If I am left waiting my turn as people are passing away, that's very different than the absolute priority world where equity doesn't get paid until I'm paid first. That's a hugely different uh, endeavor. It's entirely different in terms of the incentives, as I pointed out. Why is J&J &J and J&JCI &J going to push this through bankruptcy if they can continue paying equity, if they can spin off divisions without bankruptcy court supervision, if they continue their operations just as before, then there's no reason for them to push this through. And LTL has no reason to push this forward and have a reasonable plan because they're made for bankruptcy. They have no assets, no operations. So you're saying is through the back door equity is coming out whole, whereas if it had been old consumer <laughs> in bankruptcy, the absolute priority rule would have played out differently. It, it may well be, Your Honor, but we don't have to guess at an answer because the rules are there to make sure that happens. And we don't just and we don't set aside the rules and say, well, we're going to play monkey business with the absolute priority rule and allow this elaborate scheme where you. Take yeah, I mean, one set of claimants out because it might work out in the end. There's no sort of it might work out in the end exception to the absolute priority rule where you get to pay equity as you go. And certainly not without consent, certainly not without a bankruptcy court supervising what's going on. That's what we count on the bankruptcy courts what, for. What's your thought about individuals who may be exposed, but the exposure is 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 not really realized until years, years down the road? Right. Uh, and so, look, first, you know, the, the, if we're worried about the interests of future claimants, future claimants would be as much protected by a JJCI bankruptcy as an LTL bankruptcy. That just simply doesn't answer whether or not you should take this concocted made for bankruptcy entity and put it in bankruptcy with just the TALC claimants alone. It, if bankruptcy serves future claimants better- <clears throat> Your suggestion better, is that all these cases should be out of bankruptcy. Pardon? Your suggestion is that all of these cases should be out of bankruptcy. That's exactly right. Everybody should be treated the same. Either all the creditors are in bankruptcy or all the creditors are out. Either all the assets are in bankruptcy or all the assets are out of bankruptcy. And that's for future claims. And and look, that would, I assume that would protect people who were exposed years down the road. They would, they would not be subject to bankruptcy, of course, uh, but they would be protected. Yes, they would have their claims as they come up and as they realize they're, in, they're injured. And look, this is not the first mass tort that has something of a tail to it, where people end up getting sick over time later, at later in time. There's lots of mass torts like that. There is Vioxx for Merck. Um, there is the diet drugs litigation. <clears throat> These things happen, and the tort system has ways of handling them. Now, if there is other reasons and a legitimate basis for going into bankruptcy, well, bankruptcy has ways of handling it too. 
But concern for future claimants is not itself a reason for bankruptcy. And there's a little bit of an irony here that we have Johnson & Johnson asserting that it's concerned about future claimants when its position in this litigation is that there was no asbestos, no one was injured, this is just a matter of a, a litigation lottery, and no one should receive anything. If we're really you're interested in, top in the, the interests of top claimants, listen to the top claimants. There's just not one here telling you that they'd rather be in bankruptcy, that they really don't want to be in this, the um, tort system that 50 states have used for nearly 200 well, let's years. Let's assume we find that or come to the conclusion that it was a good faith filing. What do we do with the stay? Did the bankruptcy court exceed its jurisdiction? So I think the bankruptcy court did exceed its jurisdiction because even if one assumes that LTL's a proper debtor and that's our debtor, that has consequences. And that means when you're looking at 362 and an automatic stay, that applies to the debtor. And what the bankruptcy court did here is it stayed over 670 actions against over 670 non-debtors, including debtors that have their own independent, own tortious conduct, non-derivative liability. And that just exceeds its jurisdiction. To get there, the district court, or excuse me, the bankruptcy court looked at two things that talked about mostly supposedly shared insurance and indemnification agreements. But the key finding on that is on Appendix 159, where the court accepts that, I'm quoting, that any claim of shared identities of interest is based solely on the allocation of agreements to the debtor on the eve of bankruptcy, and here's the cure part, for the very purpose of extending the stay. The court, in essence, said, look, even though the purpose of this indemnification agreement we allocated to LTL, even though the purpose of having shared insurance was to extend the stay, that's a good enough reason to give a stay to companies like Johnson & Johnson that have their own tortious conduct. And that's just error twice over. Combustion engineering makes it very clear that agree contrived agreements for purposes of creating jurisdiction just can't be given that type of weight, because otherwise jurisdiction can be created by consent. What, what's the usual way that you would argue that there is jurisdiction? For non-debtors? For, so, for a stay that would have, uh, under 362 that would affect non-debtors, correct? So the usual way you would find that is if you found something that's akin to an identity of interest where if there's liability by the non-debtor, that is automatic liability for the debtor. And no ability of the bankruptcy court to intervene and say, yes, I know that non-debtor is liable, but it's not. I'm not going to let it dissipate the assets of the debtor. And, so, and, and in that context, is it core jurisdiction or is it related or is it in, by virtue of arising under or arising in or is it related to jurisdiction? So I think the better answer is to adhere to the text of the statute, which says only the debtor for 362A1 actions against the debtor, literally. But, but we, when you but go we, to, know, we know what courts tend to do, practically speaking. They tend to use 105 and they say, we're going to extend it because there is this, quote, identity of interest, close quote, or there is insurance that's being paid out for the non-debtor that would likely be also covered, covering the, uh, the debtor itself. Therefore, you don't want to anticipate the insurance, so therefore you fit under 362A3. And we're going to combine the two, A1, A3, along with 105, and go from there. And it looks like a lot of courts just tend to deal with it practically. I, I was just looking... For some cases, and we found one by uh, Judge Poster on the Seventh Circuit. You know, it's just no, it wasn't all that much analysis. It's just it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think the the, the right thing to do theory really is relying on a 105 because 105 is sort of a nest the necessary and proper clause. It says, well, it's necessary and proper, but 105 doesn't create its own jurisdiction. 
you have to go find jurisdiction under another provision of the bankruptcy code. And the problem with 105 is in here in particular is you'd have to have the necessary findings in, other, in order to invoke it. And the findings just are absent. For example, for indemnification, the ordinary rule is it has to be automatic indemnification. If you need another lawsuit for the indemnification to occur, as in, under federal mogul, NW um, uh, Grace, if you need another lawsuit, then it doesn't count for 105 because the bankruptcy court can intervene when that other lawsuit is filed against the debtor. <clears throat> and there's simply no finding, and I think LTL concedes this on page 96, that there's the LTL would certainly face, quote, automatic indemnity obligations. And so it just falls short under WR Grace and under federal mogul. And second, even apart from the fact that we, these are all either the bankruptcy indemnifications for the purpose of establishing jurisdiction, the 1979 JJJCI agreement, that can't really establish even for old JJCI an indemnity obligation because that covers only liabilities that are allocated, are allocated on the books or records of J&J as pertaining to its baby division. But there were no type liabilities in 1979 allocated to old JJCI at that point. And it doesn't really expressly indemnify J&J for its own tortious misconduct and to, do, to indemnify a company for its own tortious misconduct, you typically have to have language regarding fault, negligence, culpability, something like that in there. And there's no language like that in the 1979 agreement. Finally, I see my red light is on. No, that's fine. You're, you're on our time. Uh, I'd like to go into what the benefits and detriments are in considering a 524G channeling injunction or, or trust, if you will, versus the mass tort system because we've had a lot of amicus or amici file briefs one way or the other. I mean, the theme seems to be of, of the debtor that a 524G trust can be set up, it's adequately funded, along with claims coordinator already in place. The claims coordinator has a proven track record of ferreting out valid claims from invalid claims and you can do estimations and everything can be resolved in one single venue. And their, their point is, what's wrong with that? Right. So first, I think you don't get to a remedy like 524G until you have a legitimate good faith bankruptcy in the first place. And so that would not solve our problem with the, the, the lack of good faith, the fact that we've hived off one set of creditors, talc victims, for differential treatment. The fact that we've taken the actual assets of the entity and put them outside bankruptcy. But the, one of the problems here is that 524G has been distorted by that as well. Look, for a 524G trust, the idea is you take the debtor's securities and you put them in the trust with a right to dividends, says that in the statute, so that you have sort of that ongoing evergreen source of funding so you can co keep coming up with more assets to pay future claimants. Um, what this court in a footnote referred to or quoted Congress as saying that you have a goose that can, quote, lay golden eggs and continuously fund those victims. But what happened here is because we swapped out debtors from JJ and somebody with an actual operating business, famous brands, to somebody who's just a made-for-bankruptcy entity, you've swapped out a very different goose. And it's a goose that doesn't lay golden eggs. It just is a goose with a right to have a funding agreement. It's an unsecured funding agreement subject to defenses. And that's just inconsistent with combustion engineering, which says on page 248, it says, look, implicit in this is that you need an ongoing operating business. And that's reinforced by section 524 G2B, 
because that says that you can only have a litig this sort of 524G trust when your debtor was named in litigation at the time of the bankruptcy. And that forecloses the idea of that, having- that, that seems to be hyper-literal in this case, because in the end, the LTL, I think probably already has been named in, in cases, has it not? No, Your Honor, I don't think it's hyper-literal in the following sense, because it serves an important purpose. Congress wants the real tortfeasor, the real guy who has an operating business to be the one operating the 524G trust, because then his securities go into the trust. By requiring somebody to have been named when they declare bankruptcy, it ensures that you have a real company there, not a made-for-bankruptcy debtor like LTL that has no real operations and it has no well, assets. We, but we have a real company and liquidating 11s are allowed and specifically Integrated Telecom tells you in footnote four that oftentimes you have liquidating 11s and in, in my day, we had quite a number that were filed in the uh, 80s or at least in the 90s. So, so, Your all, Honor, all the time. It, you know, it's possible that if you had a consensual plan, people could agree to having something like LTL be putting its securities, whatever those might look like, in a 524G trust. I don't think it's consistent with the statute, but one could do it, could conceive of it. But this deprives the claimants of that, op of that choice. Right now, the debtor that would put its securities in is LTL, this made for bankruptcy entity that doesn't have operating divisions. And everything that's guaranteeing, everything that is you know, sort of pledged in some sense that you know, there's, an, uh, there's an, unsecured, um, an unsecured funding agreement, all those assets are now being spun off by J&J &J and won't even be assets there to, to fund it anymore. What? So I think it just completely upsets the whole idea of 524G of taking the debtor's actual securities. What, the, what would be the best approach? I, I, there are a lot of heartbreaking stories here, and, and it's very difficult to come up with a right game plan for everybody from your perspective. What, so, what would be the best approach there, uh, I, I think for, it, for these very difficult cases, these talc-related disabilities? So I, I can speak from my perspective and my clients. And from my perspective, my clients, they are happy to go forward with a traditional tort system that has operated in this country to compensate people for 200 years. But if- How long, if, would, that, how long would that take? Your Honor, I don't know how long it would take, but I know that these things do move very quickly. For example, you know, Judge Rubino downstairs, 186,000 talc resolutions, um, Vioxx resolved, uh, diet drugs resolved. The tort system can handle these mass torts this is not the first, but that also doesn't in the end tell you, what are you gonna have? Do you, is it okay to just go have a JJCI bankruptcy? Or are you going to allow there to be this concocted entity, LTL, with only talc victims, no other creditors, and all of all JJCI's assets sitting outside bankruptcy? But, but I think that, that goes Judge, too far. I mean, part of what Judge Fuentes is asking is, which system is better, the MDL system or the bankruptcy system for resolving these types of claims in an orderly way and getting money as quickly as we can to people with valid claims. So under this structure, I can tell you there's a clear answer and it's the tort system, because if you look at Bestwall, when you separate the assets and the ability to operate from the bankruptcy system, when you take only the tout claimants, only the victims and put them alone in bankruptcy, bankruptcy bogs down and you go five years without a plan, without anybody getting compensated. But, but, Before but, but, that- But Bestwall has been five years. But in this case, we don't know if bankruptcy is found to have a, a valid purpose here and it goes back. I don't know when it's going to be over, but it does seem based on what some people have filed 
that MDLs take a long time. And well, perhaps you can have bellwether trials. Um, most of what you do is discovery. You send it back to the other courts. You hope to somehow at some point you can get a settlement discussions going, but that also can take many years. Your Honor, I, I, I agree that no system is perfect here, um, but we're the ones looking for compensation and we're happy to be in that system, which can sometimes be slow, but it can also move very quickly as the examples I gave you show. But in the end, I don't think courts should be in the position of saying, I think bankruptcy is better because it's more efficient, or I think tort is better because it's more consistent with other values like having jury trials and individual justice. I think that the answer is, if you have a bankruptcy that has been structured to bypass the traditional bankruptcy protections, which is what you have here, that is not a good faith bankruptcy. If the purposes are to benefit the parent, the corporate parent, which is the case here, that is not a proper bankruptcy. So in your, in your worldview, any equities with respect to which system is better or worse shouldn't be baked into the equation? I don't think that is because it comes very, very close, Your Honor, to litigation advantage. Who thinks which system is better? Um, is this better for the victims? Is this better for the plaintiff, for the defendant or the, the, the petitioner? That's just not someplace courts should be. And what, one of the reasons for that is you kind of, in the end, have to ask more efficient, better for whom? And in this case, if you look at it, there's supposedly $61 billion in a funding for available for funding. I mean, the problem if you're, if you're a claimant is it looks like in a lot of these cases, you either get a home run or a strikeout. No, Where, well, I think the framers understood that juries can sort those sorts of things out. And if you get a strikeout, it may well be because the jury determined that you didn't have specific causation, that whatever your condition is, it was caused by something else. Well, and Mr. That's, Feinberg that's could just, probably do that much more quickly and much more efficiently than well, having a full-blown trial. Well, Your Honor, I think that's right, but the Seventh Amendment tells us that if you want your jury trial, you're entitled to that jury trial. And the framers understood that the community, the people of the United States who sit in that in the, in the dock and make the decisions, we trust them to sort those things out. And the fact that some people win and some people lose, we trust that the juries are able to sort that out. And the notion that somehow bankruptcy may be more efficient, that's just not a good basis for having a bankruptcy case. Because in the end, even if it's more efficient, who is, for, is it more efficient and who is it benefiting? Here, if there's anything under $61 billion that's ultimately distributed in this bankruptcy, and believe me, when a plan is proposed by J&J, when that happens, if it happens, it's gonna be well short of 61 billion. Anything short of that, all those efficiencies, all that extra, that accrues to equity. This is not more efficient for claimants. It's more efficient and better perhaps only for equity. If I may uh, reserve any remaining time for my rebuttal, I thank you very much. No, you're, you're, further... We'll give you plenty of time for okay. rebuttal. If there are further questions, then I'm happy to entertain them. No, no, I've got quite a few, but we'll come back. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll brace myself here. Good. Uh, we'll get, well, Mr. Frederick, or I guess oh. Mr. Janda up. Thank you very much. And then we'll get you back. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sean Janda for the United States Trustee. Um, I think it's helpful to start by just taking a step back to understand what's really happening here. At bottom, J&J has carved off one set of disfavored creditors claims, handpicked a selection of assets, and sent only those claims and only those assets into bankruptcy. If that carefully constructed bankruptcy is permitted to proceed, those claimants will be held hostage against each other, uh, with no claimant receiving any money until enough claimants agree to take whatever drips LTL chooses to release 
from the spigot of a funding agreement. Uh, I'm going to ask you a variation of the question I asked of uh, Mr. Lampkin. Let's assume instead of 1979 that LTL was formed 2010 when the first cases really started coming uh, or maybe 2014 when they saw that the cases were for real. And so you, you had good assets, bad assets, LTL gets the liabilities in connection with the, the talc. So let's, it's now been since 2014, let's say eight years. Would you still be objecting if LTL now filed for bankruptcy in 2022, 2021? So I think there's two different pieces here, Your Honor. So one piece is the um, sort of valid reorganizational purpose piece, whether there's the sort of financial distress uh, that makes bankruptcy uh, a legitimate choice. And then the other piece is the sort of subverting the structures and purposes of the code. And on the second piece, um, you know, I think it's hard to say exactly where the line is. Uh, in this case, the fact that uh, this scheme was implemented two days before the bankruptcy filing. I, I get, was I get it. You're, it, you're it saying the optics aren't good here, but I'm trying to. You're writing. You're writing an opinion here. Where's the line? Uh, and I think, uh, as Mr. Lampkin said, the line is whether um, these machinations or the scheme was undertaken uh, to try to subvert the principles of the bankruptcy code. And so it might be the case that if it happened in 2014 uh, with bankruptcy on the mind, uh, that might be enough. Uh, it might be the case that if it happened in 2014 with sort of valid business purposes on the mind, it wouldn't be enough, uh, as it's hard to give a very clear line. But this case, I think, uh, very, very obviously falls on one side of the line. And I don't think the court needs to say too much more than that to find uh, that this sort of integrated transaction very much undermines sort of a number of fundamental purposes um, and structures of the code. The Where we left off with Mr. Lampkin was the reasons to have a 524 ch channeling trust versus the mass tort system. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I think the most important thing uh, is with all respect to the court, uh, that's not really the court's job to make the determination about which system is more equitable um, or, or which system is fairer or better. Uh, that's Congress's job. And Congress has created uh, the 524G process um, that sort of assumes a, a pre-existing valid bankruptcy uh, and once you are in bankruptcy, Congress has determined that in certain clearly defined circumstances, a 524G trust uh, might be the best resolution um, in those circumstances. Congress has also implemented um, you know, the, the MDL procedures and other procedures to try to uh, make the resolution of mass claims more efficient, to balance the competing interests um, in that circumstance. But the overarching thing is that uh, Congress has determined that the strong medicine in the bankruptcy code uh, is necessary or is appropriate in certain circumstances. And, and really, I think the sort of job of the court is to figure out whether those circumstances are met, not to figure out whether at the end of the day, um, one system or the other system is better um, or fairer or more efficient. Can, can the fear of a lot of litigation, tens of thousands of cases and huge jury verdicts, can that satisfy this financial distress concern? So it depends on the particular circumstances. I point the court to SGL Carbon which has a, a very long discussion of this and SGL Carbon, um, the, the test that this court uh, implemented was sort of an immediate financial difficulty test. And so it could be the case that litigation fees um, or judgments that have been entered uh, are such that there is immediate financial difficulty. Um, but, but this court and SGL Carbon sort of specifically rejected the idea that the prospect um, even of uh, financial and operational ruin from a judgment at some point in the future uh, it is enough to satisfy that test. And in this case, as we explained in our briefs, 
uh, I mean, LTL had access to the $61 billion funding agreement before bankruptcy. I don't think anyone is going to stand up here and tell you that uh, there was any immediate concern that the $61 billion would be exhausted. Um, that it wouldn't be enough to satisfy judgments uh, in the short term or to pay the litigation costs in the short term. And, and so just under the SGL carbon test um, that, that this court implemented, uh, LTL was not in financial distress. Uh, but When you consider financial distress, I asked Mr. Lampkin, do you consider old consumer and LTL or just LTL? And he answered LTL initially. What do you say? Uh, so, so I think this court... Again, has made clear, um, and Congress has made clear that really bankruptcy is intended to benefit the debtor, uh, and the debtor here is LTL. And to the extent that LTL, um, you know, wants to take advantage of carving off this set of claims, I think it has to, as Mr. Lemkin suggested, um, if it's going to live by the sword, it has to die by the sword in that way. And LTL, I think, narrowly focused on, as I said, no one would tell you, I don't think, that LTL was in any sort of immediate financial difficulty. That being said, if you zoom out, um, the, the question might be... Wouldn't the argument be that LTL is in financial difficulty? It's just that here it happens to have a very, very big backstop, two backstops, in fact, Old Consumer and, J and Johnson & Johnson. Um, I don't think so, Your Honor. I mean, the, the rights under the funding agreement give it access uh, so long as it's not in bankruptcy. I mean, the money sort of disappears as soon as it files for bankruptcy, um, but give it access when it's not in bankruptcy to $61 billion. Uh, and to the extent that, as the bankruptcy court suggested, that LTL um, exercising its rights under that agreement would have negative effects on J&J &J or on old or new, now new JJCI. Um, and I think that just goes to the concern that this bankruptcy uh, is primarily intended to benefit non-debtors um, who, who have not submitted themselves to the supervision of the bankruptcy court, who haven't complied with the obligations of the code. Um, and, and that, as this court made clear in Bebco, is just not a valid bankruptcy purpose. There, there were some very, one could argue, uh, on one side, far out projections by the, the bankruptcy judge here as to what the potential liability can be or the range of liability, of, I think at one point, up to $190 billion, which is significantly more than the $60, 61000000000 billion backstop that's provided by Johnson & Johnson and, and Old Consumer. In that case, would LTL, if that's true, would LTL be in financial distress? Uh, no, Your Honor. And I think so. The briefs uh, obviously make clear that um, there are a lot of assumptions baked into that number that are not necessarily valid or supported. But but even assuming it's true, um, and SGL Carbon makes clear that the test is not all of your potential liability or all of your potential costs sort of stretching out into the future. Um, it's whether there's immediate financial difficulty. And as I said, no one is contending. I don't think anyone's going to get up here and tell you that there was that sort of immediate financial difficulty. So, so the key word used in SGL carbon was premature. And you, your, your point here is at this point in time today, it would be premature for LTL to say it's in financial distress. Correct. And, and I, mean, I think SGL carbon makes clear that it's not just um, because it's premature, but because in some ways it's speculative, right? You don't know how suits are going to turn out. You don't know what costs are going to be in the future. Um, if you have an operating business, uh, it is sort I think of it's just another way of saying premature. I can speculate, but it's not, we don't know. Uh, correct. But I think thinking about it as speculation um, helps explain why the bankruptcy court's findings on this uh, are really problematic because they are speculation. They're based on assumptions, um, uh, assumptions that are not necessarily supported uh, and that you know may or may not turn out to be true. Uh, but certainly there's nothing that justified in the short term, 
the invocation of the strong protections of the bankruptcy well, let's code. Assume we we uh, reverse the bankruptcy court. What would litigation look like going forward? And does J and J have any direct liability? Um, so my understanding, Your Honor, and we're obviously not involved uh, for for the most part in the tort cases. Uh, my understanding is that at least some of these judgments have been entered against J and J directly. Um, I, whether sort of that's appropriate, whether there will be more, I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I think if this court uh, concludes that the bankruptcy petition should have been dismissed uh, at that point, J and J or JJCI um, sort of or LTL merged back into New. I mean, who knows uh, what would happen? Uh, they, they could make a decision about whether they wanted to continue uh, in the tort system or whether they thought that they were facing the sort of financial difficulty. Uh, JJCI. Um, to, to justify invoking the protections of the bankruptcy code. At that point, they would submit themselves, um, all of their assets, uh, to, to the supervision of the bankruptcy court um, and would comply with the code's obligations. And again, I think that's just sort of fundamentally really the problem here is it, Congress has given very strong protections um, to Andy's facing financial difficulty um, and has determined that sort of the shield of those protections is necessary and is appropriate um, in circumstances where the person um, or the entity taking advantage of them submits itself to the code, submits itself to the bankruptcy court, complies with the many obligations of the code. Um, but here, I think sort of uh, LTL or JJ, J&J is trying to turn what should be that shield of bankruptcy into a sword um, by not complying with any of the obligations and by trying to get uh, sort of full resolution indefinitely into the future. Um, without undergoing any of those obligations that Congress has determined are required. Is the biggest concern that the U.S. Trustee's Office have has that the optics of this just don't seem normal for the type of bankruptcy that is allowed by the code in America? Uh, so, so I don't think this is about the optics of this, Your Honor. Um, it's about just fundamental subversion of the code. Uh, I mean, the U.S. Trustee cares very deeply about the structure and the integrity of the code. Um, and here... I mean, as we explained in our briefs, I'm happy to go through uh, the sort of transaction, the scheme here just uh, undermines. So let me let me try it another way. LTL has ex existed for, for a number of years. LTL has massive liabilities in connection with uh, and potential liabilities in the future. Suits being filed every day with regard to its talc products. When can LTL be safely assured that there won't be an objection of the trustee if LTL files for for bankruptcy protection? Uh, and with apologies, I don't think I can give you uh, an answer that you're gonna find satisfactory on that. I, I have no idea what in sort of other circumstances uh, the trustee would or would not decide to object to. I mean, the key here, um, and we don't think LTL is in financial distress. We don't think there's a valid reorganizational purpose. We've made that clear. Um, but, but I think the biggest problem from the trustee's perspective is the subversion of the code, it is the sort of playing games with um, these really fundamental, important rules of the code. And to the extent the particular bankruptcy wasn't doing that, um, I think the trustee's interest and, would be and different. Just to sum up, the most important rules of the code, in your view, are? Um, I mean, I think we, we would focus on three things. I mean, one is... Uh, the priority rules that creditors and equity holders have to be treated um, in a particular way. Um, equity doesn't get anything until creditors are paid. And here, equity has been getting stuff all along uh, while creditors languish in bankruptcy. 
Uh, two is the idea that, I mean, at its core, the code sets up a fundamental quid pro quo where you uh, an entity submits itself to, to a lot of obligations of the code um, and the supervision of the bankruptcy court in exchange for the code's protections. Uh, and here, that's just not Sounds happening. Sounds to me like you're talking about old consumer. You're not talking about LTL. Uh, so, so, Your Honor, I mean, I think there's sort of two things here. And one is, to the extent that the court wants to focus sort of just on LTL. No, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just following along with your answer. Uh, I, I mean, I think the, the point is that LTL has filed for bankruptcy. I don't think anyone would disagree uh, to benefit JJCI, to benefit J&J. Um, and, and those sorts of benefits to non-debtors um, are just not contemplated by the code. The code is for debtors who submit itself to its obligations. And, and the point of this bankruptcy isn't to benefit LTL. It's to benefit the non-debtors who haven't submitted to the code's obligations, um, who, who haven't done the sort of financial disclosures, who haven't had um, the supervision of the bankruptcy court, who won't have the supervision of the bankruptcy court. Uh, and that's just not an appropriate purpose for the very strong medicine the bankruptcy court provides truly distressed entities, which again, LTL was not at the time of the file. And then any, any other bankruptcy principles that you think are violated you mentioned too? And then, um, I mean, the third one, I think sort of in with the second one is the idea that uh, in addition to complying with the obligations of the code, um, it, it's the debtor submits itself to the supervision of the bankruptcy court um, and, and sort of ensures that it's acting in a way to maximize creditor returns. And here, uh, again, J&J, JJC, uh, I just haven't submitted to that supervision. Um, so that, uh, to the extent that it's separate from the second um, uh, regarding sort of the various other obligations of the code that J&J and JJC are not. If, uh, if tort litigants prefer to have their their day in court, doesn't it seem wrong that uh, old JJIC can decide otherwise by taking advantage of the bankruptcy system? Uh, I think that depends on the particular circumstances, Your Honor. Um, I mean, obviously. I think that was a softball. Uh, <laughs> well, so Congress has constructed the bankruptcy code. Um, and old JJCI uh, might well have been able to file for bankruptcy and might well have been able to take advantage of Congress's protections, um, even in the face of objections from tort claimants. Um, I think in this case, uh, obviously, tort claimants are being uniquely disadvantaged relative to equity holders and relative to uh, J&J's other creditors. Um, and that's something that's just not contemplated by the code uh, or by I mean, anything else that Congress has done. I think Congress has established uh, procedures for resolving mass tort litigation, even mass tort litigation that involves substantial liability um, and has determined that those procedures best uh, balance the relevant interests in the context of mass tort. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll hear from Mr. Frederick and then we'll take a break after that. Welcome. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court, David Frederick for the Arnold Itkin Appellant. I'd like to reserve three minutes of time for rebuttal. I'd like to emphasize two points in my presentation. The first is that your cases, Third Circuit cases, should compel reversal. BEPCO, SGL Carbon, and Integrated Telecom all set out the appropriate tests for determining what is good faith in a bankruptcy. In this situation, LTL fails the relevant tests for financial distress and good faith in promoting a bankruptcy. And I'd like to go into that in a minute. But my second point is that there is no limiting principle to LTL's position. 
they cannot tell you when any other corporation would be constrained from doing exactly what they have done, not just for a mass tort, but for any significant liability. Johnson & Johnson is a company with a market capitalization of a half a trillion dollars that throws off dividend income for its shareholders at the rate of 10 to $11 billion a year that boasts that for 59 straight years, it has increased its dividend. And so if Johnson & Johnson can get away with filing a bankruptcy to hive off its tort liabilities for tal claimants, what's to stop any other company in America from doing the same thing? I think it sounds to me like what you're saying is if the backstop instead of 61 billion for these types of claims were pick a number 5 billion then wouldn't LTL be in financial distress enough that it should be able to take advantage of the 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 bankruptcy system well, I think that you go through the normal test, Judge Ambrose, and one of the reasons why I think my colleagues have resisted this hypothetical, which I think you're you're searching for where is the line to draw. Right. And I think that the answer to that is that you're going to have to assess, was there a good faith purpose, and emphasize, is the LTL in your hypothesized construct an ongoing concern? Because one of the purposes of a Chapter 11 is to take a business that has an ongoing economic value and preserve and help through the bankruptcy rules that entity emerge out of bankruptcy. But You don't but, have but, that but, here. But like liquidated, liquidating 11s are allowed. I mean, integrated telecom tells us that. That is true. But that is also why in this court's decisions in BEPCO and SGL Carbon, it looks specifically at whether or not the entity claiming bankruptcy in order to use that process to evade certain litigation responsibilities had a parent and that the parent could either provide financing or bail it out of whatever financial difficulty it was in. And so you have exactly that situation here where J&J &J was paying the talc liabilities and it paid the Ingham judgment. That's undisputed. So it was on J&J &J to pay that. It chose to create an accounting fiction by shifting the uh, liabilities on paper to JJCI. But Johnson & Johnson did it. Johnson & Johnson paid. And there's no reason, Judge Ambrose, under your hypothesized situation, one wouldn't look at the circumstances for that bankrupt entity to determine, yes, it's got a commitment for $5 billion, but is there some other mechanism by which it could get financing in order to pay other claimants? Now, if I could go to some... The usual one would be, if, if in some way it had something going on like the royalties coming in possibly dip financing i don't know but i mean the, it would if you are a claimant it would seem that this is this bankruptcy is about as good as you can get absent getting punitives to have your claims determined estimated and paid wrong i'm sorry judge ambrose no, that's fine that I'm... is that is not correct 6800 tout claimants have already settled there has not been a single settlement since they filed for bankruptcy. What the bankruptcy does is it 
bleeds the oxygen out of the room for settlement by making every last claimant wait until there is not just a final plan confirmed, but all appeals have been exhausted. So there might be a yeah, significant- that, But that sounds like what you're, the, the problem there is the stay that was given by the court under 362. No, the problem is the funding agreement. The funding agreement, by its plain terms, and it, during the course of the appeal, you have you have a built-in stay without having asked for it. That's exactly right. But right. the funding agreement also says no money flows until the last appeal has been exhausted. And so, when you deal with any kind of complicated bankruptcy in which there might be multiple plans, um, that the last appeal has been exhausted, put that individual claim or put the case in whole. The case as a whole, no money flows. And that's the problem, that the funding agreement is not the um, be-all, end-all to this for the claimants. And Judge Fuentes, you asked exactly the right question, which is who's better off in, in such a system? And there's no reason to think that where J&J, which knew of talc liabilities for asbestos in 1969 and was found to have engaged in reprehensible conduct, would not also be liable for judgments for these victims for the asbestos in a product that seemingly is um, is 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 innocent. They've paid more than $92 billion over the last six years to their uh, shareholders in dividends and through stock buybacks. So there's no question that outside the bankruptcy system in which J&J is being benefited as a non-debtor, that they would be obligated to make payments for their own culpability for these people's um, uh, problems. Let's go back to Judge Ambrose's hypothetical. So if, if, if you were on this panel, would you venture to write an opinion identifying their line, or would you say, on these facts, it's clearly not uh, a legitimate or a good faith bankruptcy? Judge Restrepo, I, I think fairly, I would urge the court to say, the precedents of your court compel reversal and explain why. In doing so, some of those features of what constitutes a reasonable way to draw a line will emerge, but I don't think it's appropriate in a case essentially a first impression where you're looking at the Texas two-step as the first appellate court to do that. You're looking at an entity that is not what Johns Mansville did and what was the precursor to 524G, but it is a closed and capped system in which Johnson & Johnson has an incentive to fix the value of the funding agreement by spinning it off um, that agreement, which is permitted under the funding agreement itself. So you have an entity that is not like any other uh, entity out there and so to say preemptively, these would be the circumstances in which that would be permitted respectfully feels advisory to me. It doesn't feel necessary. Um, and given the creativity that led to the Texas two-step phenomenon in which not a single one of these entities has ever emerged with a confirmed plan. And in the meantime, we've had victims of all of these various um, torts go without a remedy. I don't think it would be correct or appropriate for the court to uh, create a roadmap for corporations to uh, continue to do that. That should be subject to the warp and woof of litigation. Um, I would like to though, address, um, Judge Ambrose, a couple of your questions. Sure. Um, you asked whether it was appropriate to look beyond LTL 
um, at JCCI. I think that the way that you appropriately do it under your cases is to look just at the debtor and you look at the debtor's financial distress at the time of filing. It is an eminent financial distress test for the debtor. And the reason why you do that is because the code instructs that the debtor is going to be subject to the strictures of the code and the opportunities that the code presents. And so looking beyond that um, is, is not the way you start. Now, your cases have also looked beyond the actual debtor to determine whether or not such things as financial distress is appropriate. And so I can't say you shouldn't do that. I think it is appropriate in this case to look at what the assets are available by Johnson & Johnson to provide additional liquidity and additional remedies for the debtor. But that's not typically where you start. The problem here, though, is that, as Mr. Lankin pointed out, you're create, what LTL is seeking to do is to create a disfavored set of creditors. It is only the talc victims that are subject to this bankruptcy and the strictures uh, created by the bankruptcy. Now, Judge Ambrose, you also asked which system is better. Now, leaving aside the academic discussions that I'm sure will ensue as soon as you have written uh, We've seen the them already. opinion, I would just say that, that I would say a couple of things. For settlement and providing remedies to victims, the tort system is unquestionably better. Why? Because Johnson & Johnson has every incentive to engage in negotiations that are going to inure to its benefit, but will pay money. So the 6,800 talc victims that have already received a settlement from Johnson & Johnson was because Johnson & Johnson decided it was time to settle with them. Now, it might have been that the law firm that was the uh, uh, firm superintending those particular claimants proposed a trial threat. That is a perfectly valid reason for J&J &J to decide we want to settle with that law firm and get them off the board. The tort, the tort system pays money also, doesn't it? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You can't do what I just said in bankruptcy. You can do it in the tort system. And that has happened in the tort system. It's no secret that the um, uh, way that the company would go, do, go about doing this is from a top down. We are afraid of this law firm and we do not want to go against them in court. We're going to resolve those cases for that law firm or we're not afraid of this uh, law firm, but we think if we can set a low enough floor by settling out cheap, then that be becomes a market price. And companies do that all the time. It is a perfectly um, uh, rational way to go about resolving these. That can happen in the mass tort MDL system, and it does not happen in bankruptcy because of the way the classes of the different creditors are set up and the voting rules that go along with relieving that um, system from um, the strictures of the bankruptcy rules. Now, um, just a factual question. For some reason, I had assumed normally that punitives are not available in bankruptcy. But when I look at the briefs, there, there's not a strong statement that that's one way or the other. I are punitives available in a bankruptcy? Well, we're now talking about negotiating. I think that the question of does a bankruptcy confirmed plan take into account punitive damages, I don't think the law is clear on that point. There is unsettled. I, I, I agree. And so the question then is what can you negotiate and what is confirmable as a plan? Here, the anomaly is that 
um, Johnson & Johnson was hit with a higher level of punitive damages than old JJCI. Why? Because it was the parent company that was misleading the scientists. It was the parent company that was dealing with the FDA and other foreign regulators with respect to asbestos. And so the parent company was viewed by juries as more culpable for the reprehensible conduct than the consumer uh, entity. And so when you look at the multiple upheld by the Missouri Court of Appeals in the Ingham case, that's why Johnson & Johnson was hit with higher punitives. Now, how you would do the valuation of that and the confirmation of a plan, I hope that we never get to that because I would uh, fervently urge you to rule that this was a not a good faith uh, bankruptcy. But I would suggest that that will be a much litigated question that will further delay the finalization of any bankruptcy plan. Um, you asked Judge Ambrose about what if LTL had been created years earlier. I think the part of the test of what you look at is whether it was still part of the parent company and that the parent company was continuing to finance, in which case I don't think you would find financial distress. But again, the test would be under SGL Carbon and uh, Integrated Telecom, whether there was immediate or imminent financial distress at the particular time years later that it was seeking to declare bankruptcy. But the second thing I'd like to say is that under that construct, one of the reasons why the Texas two-step is so problematic in bankruptcy is that it does not provide for asset maximization for creditors. It is designed to starve off the claims of creditors who are claimants in the tort system. And that purpose is a very important purpose of a Chapter 11, because the, the idea of allowing the reorganization is so that you can maximize the assets available to the creditors. But the Texas uh, Divisional Merger Statute, as conceived and implemented in these various cases that are uh, pending, doesn't do that at all. It tries to create a fixed cap. And in fact, that was what the J&J treasurer said in July of, of, of um, the year, that, that uh, July of 21, that they were seeking to cap their talc liability. Yeah, but so if they cap it at $61 billion, and it turns out in a lot of the briefing that I've seen from your side, that the actual amounts are going to be far less than that, does that make much difference? We don't know, and that's the problem, Judge Amber. I can't give you a definitive answer to the question of what the value or the maxim, uh, what is going to be maximized or not. What I can tell you is that the incentives for J&J &J are to drive the number as far down as they can and to wait out the tout claimants who are dying at some you know, horrible rate every day while we're waiting for this. And um, that's where the incentives are, are being drawn in this case. Um, the, the, the problem that you also have with this is that you're targeting one particular class. So Judge Ambrose, if you're, if you're going to talk about any of the features that might go into what would be an acceptable plan for this, you have to take into account the fact that any kind of divisional merger that is seeking to skive off particular liabilities is going to treat all the creditors the same way. So that if an entity like LTL goes into bankruptcy at some point in time, it has to meet the financial distress test. It has to meet the maximizing um, creditor value test. It has to have a valid purpose and not be for litigation. But it also can't target one class over another so that 
um, the, the current creditors of LTL or J&J, for that matter, get benefits that only the tout claimants uniquely suffer from. So but I in think in the course of a plan, I mean, you would have a classification under 1122 or whatever it is that specifically puts these people into their own class, would you not? Well, if you did that, you were talking about an inordinately large class, which creates its own confirmation challenges and problems. And you're also dealing respectfully with people of different ages, different conditions, different states of ovarian cancer or um, situations with respect to mesothelioma. So you've got, it's a much more complicated situation. And that's why in the tort system, the way these are traditionally done is that a group of cases will be settled and then a special master will be designated by the court to go through the circumstances of each individual claim and determine based on that pot that has been achieved what each person is going to get. Um, that is a much more challenging uh, feature that would, um, I think, than in, than in, the, banks, in the bankruptcy system. Correct. Thank you. And we'll get you back on rebuttal. We'll, we'll take a, a, you want a 10 minute break or a 15 minute break, gentlemen? Whatever you'd like. What do you guys want? Ten. Ten minute break. Boss spoke. Please be seated. Mr. Kotchoff, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Judge Ambrose. May it please the court. I very much appreciate the argument of my three friends, and I'd like to start by discussing three interlocking problems with what you just heard. Now, my friends said a lot, and if it's okay with the court, I'd like to take about four minutes, not two, uh, to try and describe these three points because uh, they reinforce each other. First is the narrow scope of your review. At this point, you're being asked to discuss, decide two questions. First, was the petition filed by LTL made in good faith? And second, should protected party litigation be stayed? Now, my friend's arguments about harm to the claimants is premature. Those are planned confirmation questions, or at least ones for the 524G 75% vote. After all, as Judge Ambrose reminded my friends, Congress handcrafted a specific solution to asbestos bankruptcy cases, which among other things requires a supermajority to approve a plan. What my friends are doing is taking all of their complaints about the bankruptcy process and pushing that all into the good faith question. Those are questions for planned confirmation, not ones for today. What is before you today is the bankruptcy court's conclusion that LTL acted in good faith. That court spent five trial days hearing from witnesses and crafted two detailed opinions, all of which rejects what you just heard. The standard to overturn Judge Kaplan is daunting. As the Supreme Court in Lakeridge put it, quote, factual findings are reviewable only for clear error with a serious thumb on the scale for the bankruptcy court. Or as this court just said in iFiber, in a complex case where the bankruptcy court does substantial work in seeking to understand the facts, great care must be exercised to defer to those findings. As for the other questions about protected parties in the stay, the bankruptcy court identified five separate bases for an injunction, and even the U.S. trustee doesn't dispute them. That's the first point. The second, the transfer of liability. Much of my friend's argument hinges on the notion that J&J, &J, not LTL, last year evaded claims by restructuring. But the key fact is this, J&J &J didn't owe anything, didn't owe anything for these claims last year. J&J &J didn't owe anything the year before. 
J&J didn't owe anything for the preceding 43 years. That is because in 1979, J&J transferred its entire baby business and all of that liability to JJCI, a separate entity, and JJCI agreed to fully indemnify J&J for all claims. So what actually happened last year? JJCI restructured and created two entities, new JJCI and LTL. Every dollar that the old JJCI was liable for, every dollar of its own conduct and anything alleged by J&J, the new JJCI was, had agreed to pay 100%. The restructuring and bankruptcy petition didn't evade anything. It was a full one-to-one -one placement. Indeed, it was even more than one-to-one -one for reasons our brief explains. Now, my friends say, well, they represent the victims and speak for them. That proves our point and proves Congress's point. They are all current claimants. Our argument is that each of their tort lawsuits has tunnel vision. It examines only their individual case and delays future ones. It's a home run or a strikeout. And precious few get up to bat. The only way to get a system-wide resolution that, that's comprehensive that protects future claimants is through bankruptcy. Third and finally, they ignore several key limiting principles of our argument, particularly Mr. Frederick, and four things make this case unique. First, a latency period of nearly 50 years with many, many future claimants who can't get any relief now and who risk not getting paid. Second, wild lottery-style judgments like Ingham, including some for billions, and a massive number of cases, 40,000, with more filed every hour of every day of every year, creating a tsunami of litigation. Third, Congress has expressed handcrafted rules for asbestos bankruptcy cases under 524G, including a 75% supermajority requirement and a rule that two courts, not one, a bankruptcy court plus a federal district court must approve the plan and scrutinize it for fairness and equity. And D, finally, all or fourth, finally, all in the context of a 1979 full transfer of liability from J&J &J to old JJCI, as well as old JJCI providing full indemnity back to J&J. &J. So this isn't a case of a parent dumping its liability the day before restructuring or anything like that. J&J &J has not been liable for decades. In short, nothing in the restructuring hurts the claimants. And even if you disagreed, the proper time to evaluate that is far down the road. And here you must just simply decide whether the petition is filed in good faith. The blink response when you hear about the divisional merger statute and how it's used, and people use the name pejoratively Texas two-step, is why didn't you just file old consumer? Life would be so much easier. <laughs> now, you might still have a battle as to whether there was financial distress but it would at least be arguably a cleaner battle. So, Your Honor, there's several responses, but the most important one is the one that the bankruptcy court get, gave after listening to the testimony. And you never really actually heard a response to it from my other side. What Judge Kaplan found is if you force that entity, old JJCI, to go bankrupt, it would have, quote, a horrific impact. Because old JJCI makes all sorts of, JJCI makes all sorts of things like, you know, Band-Aids, Tylenol, things like that. It sounds to me like only that's an attempt to preserve goodwill, which of course has been earned over the years. But it sounds like 
the argument that's being made from your side is that it's a whole lot of inconvenience, a whole lot of inefficiency, a whole lot of harm to goodwill. And why not allow this more creative way to separate out the bad from the good? Your Honor, that is a part of the argument. It is not by any stretch the whole argument. So just to take a step back, I think what the bankruptcy code would ask is, the relevant question is, is the bankruptcy petition maximizing the value of the debtor's estate? That's the goal, the purpose that we are isolating from page 120 of integrated telecom. So I don't think the bankruptcy code says you're to burden debtors for the own sake. You're supposed to do it because in some sense it's going to maximize the value. And so what one thing, and this is my first answer to you, what Judge Kaplan found is that you are maximizing the value by going through the divisional merger statute, because otherwise there would be actually less money available, including to claimants, because uh, because of the loss of goodwill, the loss of all that, you know, forcing the entire company into bankruptcy, all the different findings he found. Now, another key part of this is there's two possible reasons I think my friends isolate for why you'd want this larger entity to force this larger entity to go bankrupt. One is because you want to guarantee the amount of money that this larger entity, JJCI, has for claimants. And that's exactly what the funding agreement does. So does, does old JJCI qualify for financial distress? We believe it does as does LTL, as my so friend, the U.S. trustee. If it does, then isn't it the real party in interest? Well, I don't know if it's a real part at this point because the LTL is the one that filed the petition. We agree with Judge Kaplan. Either way you slice it, whether it's LTL or JJCI, there's massive financial distress, and I can go through that evidence. But I do want to first really deal with your first question because I think it's the Actually, heart of what... They're, they're dovetailing together. Yeah, they dovetail, but, but Mr. Lamkin really spent a lot of time on this idea that old JJCI was the entity that had to go bankrupt. And our first point to you is the old, one main reason why he's isolating is because you want claimants to get paid. But this funding agreement gives the entire value of JJCI, the entire value, $61 billion, free and clear to the potential claimants. So that the entire pot of money is available. Now, my friend says, but they'll, maybe JJCI will squander the assets. And that's why you need bankruptcy court jurisdiction. Maybe they'll transfer it to equity. The funding agreement, this is quite important to our argument, the funding agreement itself bars that. Or if it occurred, if there were any payment to the uh, uh, to, to J and J or to shareholders or anything like that distributions. All of that increases the sixty-one billion dollar pot. Sixty-one billion dollars is only a floor, not a ceiling. I'd like to walk you through the language of the funding agreement so that you understand, so that it's clear why my friend's argument is wrong. So the funding agreement says that you take the greater of either one the fair market value of old JJCI immediately prior to the divisional merger. That amount is $61.56 billion. That's appendix page 7422. Or it says it's the fair market value on the date that LTL and the new JJCI refused to pay under the funding agreement. That's appendix page 4316 and 4619. Here's the most important point about 4619. If 
the hypothetical that my friend says happens and it materializes, that JJCI does something to try and give J and J money to, you know, in the form of distributions or something like that, that just bumps up the amount of the funding guarantee under the agreement. That is page 4319. So the funding agreement solves for exactly the problem. We don't think there's anything in the code that requires, of course, you know, the larger entity to declare bankruptcy. But to the extent you're worried about it, to the extent you're worried, oh, you know, maybe this is going to create some bad incentive. The funding agreement does that. And here's the second most important point. J&J guarantees that funding agreement, not just JJCI. In the current world, in the, the pre-restructuring, pre-bankruptcy baseline world, they could maybe try and sue JJCI. We know those lawsuits take time and so on. We could talk about that in a moment. But the most important point is whatever their lawsuits would get, it would only get up to $61 billion and not even that because that money is not free and clear. It'd be subject to all the other creditors that JJCI have and stuff like that. And of course, there's no J&J &J guarantee under the pre-restructuring world. Let, let me work backwards. When do funds come out of the funding agreement to pay claimants in a bankruptcy? So under, uh, it's under the terms of the agreement, first LTL has to pay um, in whatever they have, and then new JJCI is to pay whatever they have. And then afterwards, uh, anything else, if there's any excess. What about the point that Mr. Frederick makes that no money's come out until all the appeals are resolved? Well, I think that's true, of course, in, in, in the regular tort system, in the bonds under Rule 62 of, 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 of federal civil procedure. So I don't think that's any different from, uh, from, the, from, the standard, from the standard system. And of course, here, I think you've got to grapple with Mr. Uh, Judge Kaplan's finding that, uh, that there are, you know, 49 trials have happened, Your Honor, to date. In all of these 35 cases, thirty-five have gone to verdict, right? Yeah, very, very few. So Out eighteen, of, you you won. Seventeen, you lost. Yeah, and then some of those were reversed on appeal. And as Judge Kaplan said, you know, we have a very good batting rate, and for all the reasons that our briefs explain. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, there's going to be financial distress because of the massive number, forty thousand lawsuits, and more being filed every day. Well, let, let's go back to you said, the full amount of all assets of old JJCI are available to pay claimants. So once again, you come back to, to my question, why not file old JJCI in the first place? Yeah, for two reasons. One is it would reduce the number of the dollars actually available to claimants because forcing, as Judge Kaplan found, old JJCI into bankruptcy reduces the value of JJCI. Except you've got a company that has is ongoing with very, very profitable products that, that have been well earned over decades. And that's exactly Judge Kaplan's point, which is you don't have to, because of the funding agreement, because you get all of the good without the bad, you get the full value of the company, not subject to any creditors or anything like that. It's free and clear, up to $61 billion, and then you get a backstop from J&J. &J. And remember, my friends, their brief says J&J &J has better credit than the United States government. So in terms of which deal is better, 
for the claimants, for all the claimants, not just my friends sitting at the table, but including future claimants, which is a huge chunk, as Congress noted in 524G, because of the latency period for asbestos. If I understand you correctly, if I'm hearing you correctly, it, it almost sounds like J&J did this to benefit the claimants. They had the claimants' best interest at heart, and, and then they do this Texas two-step. But the timing doesn't suggest that. The timing suggests that this was really done for litigation advantage. As I understand it, LTL is created four months after the Supreme Court denies cert in the Missouri litigation. And the next day, they declare bankruptcy. So how do you reconcile that for me? Because I'm Absolutely, a little trouble with Your that. Honor. And this is exactly what my friend said to Judge Kaplan, and he rejected it on the facts. Not litigation advantage, but four separate purposes. The first purpose- well, do you concede that there is a litigation advantage by doing this? Well, I think it's a byproduct of this. Absolutely. So there is a litigation advantage. Well, I think it's a byproduct, but as Judge Kaplan found, that wasn't the reason. LTL has been transparent. There's been lots of discovery on this that Judge Kaplan referred to and said, no, the reason for this is fourfold. First, that there's huge defense costs to the tune of two to $5 million per case multiplied by as many as 40,000 cases. You didn't hear a word from my friends. They have a lot of time up here. They didn't have an answer to what Judge Kaplan found. That's a huge deadweight loss. Every one of these cases costs us millions to fight, and even if the claims are meritless. So that's all money that could be going to the claimants but now is not going to the claimants. Instead, it's going to, to pay attorneys. The second is, as I was saying to Judge Ambrose, the horrific impact is what Judge Kaplan called the massive disruptions that would, injure, would endure if old JJCI was forced into bankruptcy. That's at page A47. Third, the equity concerns for future claimants, which is a particular concern here, given Congress's handcrafted statute in 524G and this very long latency period. We understand my friends have to zealously represent their clients before this court. They represent current clients. What Congress is telling you is there's a worry about latency and about future claimants, and this is a solution that's comprehensive for everyone. And lastly, Your Honor, it's because Judge Kaplan found the bankruptcy process is a lot faster than the tort process. My friend talked about 6,800 settlements, but doesn't mention what Judge Kaplan said about that, which is, he said two things. One, that will be dwarfed by the 40,000 cases that have already been filed and the many more that will come. And also, he said that the past number of settlements won't occur in the future, and this returns to your question, Your Honor, because of Ingham. What Ingham did was basically create a shiny object for folks to try and keep their cases in the tort system with the hope of a lottery-style big payday. Some people will get home runs. Most people, Judge Kaplan found, don't get a turn at the bat. That's what J and J. Excuse me. That's what LTL was dealing with in this uh, in the in, in this uh, restructuring, and that's why the funding agreement is written the way it does. It provides. It provides my friends, as well as future claimants, a guarantee of at least $61 billion. Now, Judge Ambrose, I think you pointed out, well, there's some kind of contradictions here. How much is the, how much are the claims really worth? Um, you know, and Judge Kaplan, of course, talked about that in his opinion. He yeah, said, yeah, I, I didn't see any strong defense of his 190 billion. Well, it's up to 190 billion, and it was just the defense costs, and he got it by simply saying two to five million dollars per case multiplied by 40,000 cases. But it was the the high the high end of every 
Correct. And we're not we're not defending necessarily the high end, of course, but we do. We are defending vehemently Judge Kaplan's conclusion after hearing from expert after expert, including Dr. Bell, about the level of financial distress that the company faced. And my friends are asking you to reweigh the evidence and say, oh, well, these lawsuits actually don't impose as much of a present liability or this or that. Judge Kaplan evaluated all of that and found financial distress, including most significantly in 2019, the consumer division had a $2.1 billion profit. And just the very next year, because your honor, because of Ingham, along with other talc litigation, they had a $1.1 billion loss in one year. And talc liability, Judge Kaplan found, was responsible for that. If you look at the years 2018 to 2020. Talc liability was responsible for a significant portion of that, wasn't that correct? Correct, yes, a significant portion of that. And the talc litigation, for example, Judge Kaplan found from the years 2018 to 2020, uh, cost 27% of all costs of old JJCI and 32% in the year 2021. But coming back to the, the at the outset, if you have a parent company and it has a subsidiary that's changed its name, but a subsidiary has been there for 43 years and the subsidiary has a major problem with one of its products that's caused mass tort litigation and and some fear of what could happen in the future usually what happens over all these decades is you file the subsidiary and you go from there if the concern and you said that all of the assets of old jjci will be put into play for funding uh, the claimants claims that are valid and you look at the next case, I think as Mr. Frederick said, uh, and you're worried about, okay, you don't have a Johnson and Johnson consumer. No. You have Acme, no. uh, you know, Acme Inc. I don't mean the grocery chain, by the way. Uh, I apologize to them. I'm thinking of the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, but the, uh, uh, that, they don't have 61 billion. No. They are there with maybe four or five billion at tops. They're going to run out of things and they're saying, we're going to do this divisional merger and, and go from there. And you can see that the slippery slope comes into play and people are saying, let's stop this before it really gets out of hand. Right. That's totally. We are very sympathetic to exactly that argument, Your Honor. So for to three points. One is you're exactly right that the ordinary course is a subsidiary would declare bankruptcy. That's your own opinion. Yeah, joined by Judge Fuentes and in Ray Owens Corning back in 2005. That's exactly what happened. That's what this court approved. Second. We're not here defending something in the absence of a funding agreement. If there is no funding agreement, the valid bankruptcy purposes that Judge Kaplan isolated, those four, look very different. They look like litigation advantages. But here, if you were to ask, what is the litigation advantage that is served that could somehow dwarf Judge Kaplan's four different uh, findings uh, of, of valid purpose, it'd be hard, you're hard pressed to do so because this deal gives this this restructuring and this petition gives actually more to the claimants. Now, all the claimants, including future claimants. And that's what Congress is telling you. This funding agreement 
has a bifurcation. It will fund in bankruptcy and out of bankruptcy. Isn't that correct? Uh, it, I believe it only funds in bankruptcy. I mean, what does it do outside of bankruptcy? I don't think it has any 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 life outside of the bankruptcy. So you know, basically, it's a oh, in in Ingham when Johnson and Johnson stepped up and paid. It did it for what reason? Because of a judgment was against so, it. So actually, it's just flatly wrong, Your Honor. Ingham was paid not by Johnson and Johnson. It was okay. paid by JJCI. I don't know where my friend is getting that from. And. Uh, you know, and indeed, I can point you to different parts of the record which directly contradict what he's saying. Of the of the yeah. seventeen verdicts, or uh, of the portion of the seventeen verdicts not overturned on appeal, how many of those verdicts also were against J and J? I think some may have been against J and J for derivative liability or something like that, but all of them were paid for by JJCI or now. LTL, every one, every dollar. And so, you know, the 1979 agreement actually is written to say it's a full transfer of liability to JJCI, but it also says full indemnification uh, of for J&J, &J, and everything has to be paid for by JJCI or now LTL. So any suit against J&J &J at any point is always going to be paid by now LTL. That's the logic behind Judge Kaplan's finding on question two uh, about whether the stay should be extended to protected parties. One of the questions I asked the other side, uh, more than one counsel, is when you look at this picture, are you taking into account just LTL or LTL and old JJCI? And their answer uniformly was LTL. It sounds like from what you're saying that part of the equation here is taking into account old JJCI. Well, we think actually we agree with the U.S. trustee that the relevant question is actually is whether LTL as the petitioner is facing financial distress. But we can understand why Judge Kaplan also made findings on old yeah, JJCI. Yeah, he specifically, which, he, he meshed them together. Yes, we found either way that there was going to be financial distress. And so we agree with, you know, we, we agree with the way Judge Kaplan approached it. Um, so either way, whether you look at LTL and the litigations they faced, or you looked at old JJCI and the litigations they face, either way, it's going to meet this court's test for financial distress. What Mr. Frederick said is, take a look at the three cases that this court has decided, BEPCO, SGL Carbon, and Integrated Telecom. We very much want you to look at those cases because all three, I think, are miles away from this case. In BEPCO, there were six litigations in total, six. In SGL Carbon, six complaints in the United States, one in Canada. Integrated Telecom, a whopping one securities case at issue there. And most importantly, but each of those in cases... Effect, in, let's just take, for example, SGL Carbon. It looked like what was being done was ultimately to file uh, for bankruptcy. And in the end, when you have a dissolution, it will be under state law that will return equity back to the uh, equity holders, which one would, under the absolute priority rule in bankruptcy, not see happening. So I think, uh, you know, I think SGL Carbon really goes on the notion of few litigations, and this is done for litigation advantage. That's pages 124 and 125 of that decision. Of course, here, to the extent you're worried, Your Honor, about what my friend said about somehow money being paid to equity in a violation of the absolute priority rule, as I was saying, the funding agreement captures that because every dollar that goes to J&J &J, J &J 
from JJCI in the form of a distribution at page 4319 of the record makes very clear this funding agreement says that just bumps up the value of new JJCI, the amount available to the claimants. Um, How so would you propose in one, the example I noted that you'd have a much less funded entity in bankruptcy and a much less funded backstop how would you propose that bad consequences be blunted? Uh, through the through, through the court's review process. So, and even before the review process, of course, it's a 524G solution because 75% of the claimants would have to approve it. And your honor, as you said to my friend on the other side, you always have the possibility of filing an adversary action uh, for fraudulent conveyance. And indeed they tried some of that language in the bankruptcy court. They tried to suggest this was a fraudulent conveyance, but at this court, as this case comes to the court, they dropped all of that out because I think it doesn't cut the mustard. Here, uh, this funding agreement is- yes, to, I mean, The only answer I got was it's premature to do so now let's let's figure out whether the filing was in good faith and then they'll cross that bridge when they come to it i mean that's the answer that i got yeah and i, and I just don't think that, that that ultimately answers the question and i just want to return to for a moment to those three cases that my friend was referring to because pointedly they distinguish between those six or seven litigations and the many thousands, I think 16,000 that were at issue in John's Mansville. And they said that is the kind of, certainly the kind of flood of litigation that would create financial distress. And here Judge Kaplan looked at the existing 40,000 litigations and said that is certainly enough for financial distress given the numbers, the testimony from Dr. Bell that I referred to earlier uh, and the like. Is, is LTL fully capable of satisfying the tout claims? By itself, without a resort to the funding agreement, we think the answer to that is no. But with the funding agreement, absolutely. Our position, and Judge Kaplan found this too, is that we believe that $61 billion, which is of course only a floor, could go up, is enough to pay 100% of all valid claims. And when I say valid claims, it excludes two things. It excludes the deadweight losses of billions and billions of dollars paid to lawyers for defending against this. So the bankruptcy system avoids that, as Judge Kaplan explained. And second, and this gets to a question that, Your Honor, you asked uh, Mr. Frederick, it excludes lottery-style punitive damages. You're absolutely right. We spent a long time looking, trying to understand, does the bankruptcy system bar punitive damages? I think the answer to that is no, it doesn't bar them. And we certainly think that, uh, but we think that it would even it out to the extent there were any available. The way that I think the process would unfold, Judge Ambrose, is there's been an estimation expert appointed, the name of Ken Feinberg, you know, obviously an expert in this field. He is going to look at the amount of liability, and he could, I suppose, and probably will get briefing on, should punitive damages be part of that estimation process? Does J&J &J have any direct liability in this case? And, and this, given the 50-year latency period of these tout claims, right? right. Does J&J &J have any direct liability or direct exposure? We don't think they have, they certainly don't think they have any exposure. I'll walk you through the language of the 1979 transfer. So, um, it first transfers, quote, all of the businesses of the baby division to this subsidiary, JJCI, and all assets and liabilities. 
Um, Judge Kaplan excerpted it at A163 and A164. And then it says, JJCI, quote, agrees to assume all the indebtedness, liabilities, and obligations of every kind, and the subsidiary will forever indemnify and save harmless J&J &J against all the indebtedness, liabilities, and obligations. That is a very, very strong indemnification. So J&J, &J, and that's why, since this has been written in 1979, J&J uh, &J hasn't paid a dime. It has always been old JJCI. Now, it's true there was a centralized account, which is used in lots of parents and subsidiaries, in which J&J &J initially may have may sometimes paid that cash out. But as the record shows, it was always booked back to old JJCI. That's appendix pages 4107 and appendix 8103. And, you know, as I say, if you look at who paid Ingham, it was not J&J. &J, it was JJCI. Why would punitive damages be a factor to consider? Uh, because uh, I think Congress was worried about this in 524G. Because you have the massive number of future claimants with this long 50-year latency period, you have to worry that a $2 billion verdict in Ingham added to other punitive damage verdicts will take away from the ability of future claimants to recover. That's why we're here, Your Honor. That's the purpose. You know, that's what Judge Kaplan found was the purpose based on looking at this evidence. I know it makes for a good story to say, you know, this big company that has all these profits is somehow trying to evade responsibility or something like that. And as I said, the agreement from 1979 on has always transferred all of that liability. Now, Judge Ambrose, you asked my friend on the other side, um, well, what if this were done in 2014, or what if the, you know, the restructuring as opposed to now? Um, is the use of this Texas divisional merger statute, what is the problem there? And I think the bankruptcy code takes the uh, debtor's corporate structure as a given, as it comes under state law. And we followed here Texas law meticulously. And I think it'd be a very dangerous rule for this court if you were to start line drawing, and I couldn't hear my friend's answer to the questions about line drawing. Is 2014 okay? Is last year okay? Is two days different or something like that? Um, and uh, so, so, so I think that's one important point. The other is actually that 524G itself contemplates pre-petition restructuring. And I point you to 524G4A, little two, Big IV, sorry about the, the long statute. The, exactly, it is a long statute, but it provides that a channeling injunction can bar actions, quote, directed against a third party and arriving because of its involvement in a transaction changing the corporate structure of the debtor or a related party. And so if Congress thought that a full company is the thing that must declare bankruptcy, I don't think it would have included this provision in it. Rather, I think Congress anticipated basically that there would be pre-petition restructuring. I think it's notable that my friends, for all they're saying, they say we're inconsistent with the bankruptcy code. What provision are we inconsistent with? What provision are we violating? There's some meta principle, I guess, that they're isolating, but they can't point to any particular provision. They're pointing out the gateway provision that you have to file a bankruptcy in good faith, and they're claiming that this was not done. So that's what we're that's what we're talking about. That's the primary issue. And, today. and if that's if that's what they're isolating, we think Judge Kaplan found four different reasons why uh, 
four different reasons why that uh, the um, why the valid purpose of bankruptcy has been one, served. One just fact question. In terms of the proposal made here to deal with the, the liabilities of, of LTO and, and the funding, were those types of proposals, any variation of that made in connection with the MDL litigation? Uh, I don't believe the funding agreement had anything to do with the MDL litigation. Rather, as the court found- Yeah, I'm just saying the concept. Yeah, I don't know about the concept. I mean, I think the only thing I'm aware of is the court's finding at A13, relying on their own expert, that this was a single integrated transaction. And uh, and so I, with the restructuring and, fund, and funding agreement. Now you had asked before, Your Honor, I just have to slightly correct something. Uh, I understand that the funding agreement does have provisions for funding outside of bankruptcy. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yes, yes. So, so I apologize for that. Uh, but our- what what are the opt outs that are being considered? So the 524G process has the say people who can say I don't want to be part of the bankruptcy. I'm going to opt out and and go forward with respect to my litigation. Yeah. So I mean I think Congress put that into the statute itself, saying there has to be a 75 percent requirement for the plan, and then of course there's two court review. So there's a lot that has to happen, and I think the most important point about but that do you is, contemplate that this plan even though it's not yet in place will allow for any type of opt-out um i don't know that we have gotten that far i think that's a pre you know to, to use a word from earlier i think that's a premature question um but i would say that you know with a 75 percent threshold is of course very daunting we are highly incentivized to put a good plan together because otherwise we get returned to the mass tort system with all of the uncertainty and all the all of the problems attendant to it. And Judge Kaplan, um, you know, my friend Mr. Frederick said he wants you to write a decision really about these facts. We absolutely agree. Judge Kaplan has said time and again his goal is to move this thing incredibly expeditiously. My friends on the other side said they thought this process could be done as early as the first quarter of next year, and Judge Kaplan has rejected time and again any attempt to delay the bankruptcy process, which looks very different, of course, than what's going on in the tort system, as Your Honor was asking my friends on the other side. Massive delay, only a few trials head to verdict, and you know, as Judge Kaplan found, future trials are going to be even more delayed and very few settlements because of the Ingham verdict and other things. And so, you were asked to compare two different worlds. One is the baseline of the pre-restructuring, pre-bankruptcy world in which Johnson & Johnson owes nothing, in which some people slowly get paid, but that's subject, of course, to any other claims against old JJCI, any recovery. There are huge defense costs, and future claimants risk not getting paid with all the latency. And under the restructuring and the funding agreement, Instead, you have a very different world, one with a $61 billion plus floor. Uh, that money is guaranteed free and clear. You have a faster process, so current claimants get paid, and future claimants have a voice at the table. They have a representative, because that is under 524G. And of course, the claimants, including everyone sitting at that table, will have, we have to persuade three quarters of them that this is a fair and equitable solution. And then we have to persuade two different courts about that, the bankruptcy court and the district court, district court after that. 
And we will have, you know, Ken Feinberg's estimation as part of that to start to break what otherwise has been an intractability between the parties. Is LTL going to con continue as a going concern afterwards, or is this just a liquidating trust in, in effect? Well, we suspect that, uh, you know, LTL does have, for example, a royalty business that will continue. How much does that bring in a year? It brings in about $50 million, the record shows a year, and is worth about $350 million. So by itself, Your Honor, to answer one of your earlier questions, that isn't enough to provide, that isn't, a, that, that, that money isn't enough to avoid financial distress. And, uh, and, and so, and so if, uh, LTL doesn't, um, uh, if LTL doesn't restructure and doesn't have the funding agreement available to it, then obviously it's going to be, you know, a, that it's going to be underwater and, and have all the problems Judge Kaplan referred to. What do you make of the stay? Your, your friends, as you keep referring to them, uh, are adamant that the court would exceed its jurisdiction with respect to the stay, issue number two. Yeah, we think that Judge Kaplan, as I say, he identified five reasons why there is, and crucial to all five, and they're all independent of one another, they have to run the table. But I think one central idea he had is that this involves the same basic claims during the same time period. And what he did is it's a limited stay against certain parties, and it, it's a surgical one. In order for a stay to occur, two things have to happen. Maybe One is surgical with 670 parties, yes. non-debtors. Yeah. Well, but again, Your Honor, we're talking about a massive amount of litigation, 670 versus, as I say, 40,000 claims that are currently in existence. I'll to read to you the terms. Uh, well, of how many insurers are we talking about of that, um, of that 670? Is, is, is the whole shooting match 670? I think it is. The whole shooting match is 670. The insurers, uh, the list is at pages A249 and 250. Um, I don't think it's very many. It's like AIG, Prudential, and the like. But let me read to you the how terms. How many retailers? Uh, the retailers are, um, they're, they're, that's a three-page list at A245 to 48. There are a number of them. It includes you know, CBS and things like that. And here's what it includes, and then let me tell you what it doesn't include. Okay. It includes two things. One, Claims that or include the two things must have to happen. The claim must first arise from the manufacture or sale of talc-containing products by old JJCI or J&J, &J, and second, that were asserted against or could have been asserted against old JJCI. That's Joint Appendix page 195. And so it's not, for example, a stay on unrelated things like mesh litigation against J&J &J or anything like that. And it's done, and this is crucial, it's done for a simple reason. Because if you can start suing, Judge Ambrose, the retailers like CVS or the insurers, that reduces the overall pot of money that is available to the claimants, both present and future. And particularly in a world in which Congress has set a 75% supermajority threshold that we have to CBS convince. CVS has its own insurance, right? Uh, CVS may have some of its own insurance, but certainly, uh, you know, I think that uh, there, there will be indemnification obligations that Judge Kaplan found were automatic at page A181. Uh, and so, and, and, uh, and I don't think automatic is even the test, but even to the extent you thought it was, there were automatic indemnity obligations. Um, and uh, so I think what Judge Ka what, what, what the logic behind this stay is, is that otherwise that limited amount of money 
will be going to these other things and therefore reduce our ability to actually persuade 75% of them to confirm a plan, which is, of course, what Congress is asking for here. Congress looked at the problems with the mass tort system, the problems with the MDL, which, by the way, here include no state claims, um, include no mezzo claims, wouldn't include Ingham, for example. So, uh, and Congress decided that MDLs wasn't the way to deal with this specific problem. And so to return to an earlier question you had, Your Honor, about the precedent that's set, those four limiting principles that I said at the outset, we think are crucial here. We're not saying that you can, you know, that you can do this in other areas where you don't have a latency problem, but here you do. You have a huge number of future claimants, and Congress has isolated but specifically that. That, that, that could be taken into account. We want to get a settlement in a, an MDL. I'm sorry. Could you? If it, that could be taken into account, we're one to get a global settlement in an MDL. But an MDL will never give you the stay that the MDL will never give you the stay on litigation that is necessary to craft a kind of comprehensive plan. All an MDL does is coordinate pretrial proceedings. But they and often do result in settlements. They may result in settlements, but in order to, Your Honor, to, I think to, to go that way, you're going to have to jump over Judge Kaplan's findings about settlements in which he found that because of Ingham and because of a variety of other things, the past settlement rate is no guarantee and indeed it's not going to happen in the future, that fewer parties are willing to settle because of Ingham and because of other things like the FDA test and things he isolated at page, Joint Appendix page A41. But I, I, if settlement is a viable option in the context of a bankruptcy via a plan, of course, why would it not also be a viable option in an MDL? Because you don't have, for one thing, you don't have future claimants at the table. So Congress has specifically put but, in five. But a settlement could have provisions for future claimants, could it not? It could, but they don't have any voice in the process. And so the incentive is, as you know, again, and I don't fault my friends, but their job is to zealously advocate for current claimants, their clients. There is no, that's why I think Congress wrote the statute in 524 that it did. And, you know, could you imagine some hypothetical world in which the MDLs do actually do all this? I suppose you could. It's just there's literally no evidence that that's ever happened in the amici briefs that are before you, including, I'd suggest, the National Association of Manufacturers brief at pages 15 to 16, really goes into detail about the inability of MDLs to actually provide any relief or any settlements, actually, that, uh, that generate um, uh, payments to the claimants. And so, again, to return, Your Honor, to the question you asked my friend on the other side, which is, What's the more efficient solution? What's the way? We've gone through this process for year after year, and it's not working. Congress has given you a different approach, a different way to go in 524G. And what we've done is, through the use of this funding agreement, provide a backstop that's much better than they could get under the mass tort system, not for any one of their individual clients, but comprehensively and overall. If I could, you had asked about the stay before as well, and I'd also point you to, I think, the language of 362A3 and this court's decision in McCartney, which I think, as Judge Kaplan found, was a, was square precedent in saying... How, how many of the 670 are J&J &J entities besides J&J &J itself and J&J &J consumer? 
I suspect that most of them are not and, you know, are not change entities. And our point is not to benefit. R roughly, the, roughly how many I, are. I, uh, Your Honor, I haven't looked at those appendix pages. Would be, I think it's appendix pages 245 to 50 list all of the protected parties. So I'd point you to those. I just don't want to characterize them. Um, it's in the hundreds, is it not? I think there's many, many other entities. And our point is these, this stay is not being done to benefit but, them. But, it's but, not being done to benefit but not, Have they been sued in these various 49 actions that have gone to trial so far in the United States? Uh, or, not, or, or almost went to trial, I should say. I, I'm not sure if they were sued in them. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Uh, I don't believe so, but I, I'm, not, I'm not positive. I think there are litigations against them. And the purpose that we're seeking for the stay is not to benefit them or not to benefit J&J. &J. It's rather to hit pause and make sure that the corpus of funds is not available. And we feel so strongly about this that if we weren't able to get the 362 or 105 stay, this first question about financial distress and valid bankruptcy purpose doesn't help us. So the petition is basically meaningless for the reasons Judge Kaplan found. We need that stay because otherwise they plaintiffs will sue for these very same claims. They'll sue some other entity and that will hurt us in forms of the indemnification. But if, but if it's not Johnson & Johnson or Johnson & Johnson consumer, which have been involved in connection with this process, how could they possibly win against Johnson and Johnson, you know, floor uh, you know, floor covering or whatever? They'll they'll be indemnified. So whoever the entity is that sued, they'll be indemnified. They'll share insurance policies. But, but they, the the point being that the suit's not going to win against them. I mean, Johnson and Johnson was the one involved until 1979 with the talc products. Then it was baby products, which later became consumer. And now it's LTL. These other entities in the hundreds, I, what I don't understand is why this stay is so broad. Uh, because those are, as and Judge Kaplan looked at the claims, the same claims. It's just a different place in the supply chain. And it's pretty common in these mass tort cases to sue this, you know, everyone in the chain, the insurer, the retailer, and the manufacturer. And to be sure, we think at least with respect to suits against J&J, &J, they wouldn't have viability. But as Judge Kaplan also found, you know, even a very low success rate is enough to create financial distress. And that's because of the indemnification agreements, correct? The indemnification it, it insurance. The, it would bleed the fund. It, exactly. It would bleed the fund. Exactly. And again, with a 75% threshold that we have to meet in order to confirm a plan, uh, you know, if the fund is bled and insurance proceeds are dropped or things like that, it's very hard. And then there's also, of course, the possibility of record taint, as Judge Kaplan also found. So those are all different reasons why the stay looks the way it does. And, you know, I understand it's a large number of parties, but it's a large number of parties for a very important reason. There's a large amount of litigation in this space, and 670 is an appropriate amount. Now, if you disagree and you're worried about it, as Judge Kaplan also said, I think it said A173, he will have the parties come back and have to continually justify the, the breadth of the stay. And of course, anyone can come in and try and lift the stay or something like that. We're incentivized throughout this entire process to make sure that we move expeditiously and quickly to try and develop a plan that 75% of them can agree. Because otherwise, as Judge Kaplan has said, he's gonna dismiss the bankruptcy petition. He said it's really important that this all move incredibly fast and we are as incentivized as it comes to make sure 
of that because otherwise we're stuck in the old pre-restructuring world. And the U.S. trustee is saying with respect to that, that's a, that's a matter for Congress in terms of picking one system versus the other. Well, we do think Congress has exactly picked that in 524G, Your Honor. And so, you know, to be sure, if we violated some state law, violated the Texas Divisional Merger Statute in some way, shape, or form, that's a problem. And Congress would have to fix that by allowing something. But here, we complied with everything in that statute, and the bankruptcy code takes state law as it finds it. And we understand that there's a way to abuse the divisional merger statute. We don't doubt that. It's just that in this case, we think you should write a limited opinion, just as the bankruptcy court did, that says, with this funding agreement, this is a valid, pay valid purpose, and this is a appropriate amount of parties to be stayed. In connection with the stay, which Judge Restrepo brought up, an opening question I have is that the the jurisdiction of the court is it a core proceeding? In other words, saying that it's core by virtue of 362A1 dealing with the debtor, or 362A3 dealing with the debtor's property, uh, or is it uh, or is it related to? I have a dumb question. If it's just related to and therefore non-core, doesn't a bankruptcy judge have to go to the district court with a report and recommendation, have the district court sign off? I'm always scared, Your Honor, when you ask a dumb bankruptcy question. Uh, that's it. I'm starting to get worried, but I think uh, the answer... I, I, I said to a couple people, this is a dumb question, but... No, I think, the answer, I think to, you what? have it exactly right, that uh, it is something that the district court would have to approve if it's related to jurisdiction. Of course, here, it's 362... Uh, that we're placing predominant emphasis on, and also the other parts of 105 under arising in or arising under. And if I could walk you through that. So for 362A1, there are two different theories the bankruptcy court found. One is that this is a stay, this is, uh, these are lawsuits that are virtually against the debtor. And so he said it fits under the very first clause of a proceeding against the debtor. And then he also said it's, quote, a claim against the debtor under the second part of 362A1. And we think the second part is the right way to think about this, that these lawsuits are in effect, for reasons that Your Honor mentioned before, effectively against the debtor, and it's a claim against them. And as the Second Circuit said in Colonial Realty, that second part of A1 has to have some meaning. It can't just literally be suits against the debtor. It includes third parties, at least here where the third party lawsuits involve the same basic claims during the same time period. And then there are questions about 105 and arising in and arising under. And we think there that, you know, the, the automatic stay well, is rising in and arising. Uh, it's hard for me to say 105 is arising in or arising under. Rising uh, under means it's explicitly given to you in the code. Rising under means it comes to you as a result of something else that's in the code. 105 is sort of one of those things that implements something that otherwise may be given to you. It's but 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 I think here the the theory is, and, and many courts have done, including the court below, is to say that 362 is the thing given to you in the code, the automatic as, as for the debtor. Exactly, and then as a in order to safeguard the vitality of that and to make that process work, you need a stay against others, uh, not that they 
court will adjudicate on the merits, of course, those other cases. It's just a temporary pause under 362 and 105 to make that process work. My perception, based on a lot of anecdotes over the course of years, is that most courts just say, okay, we're going to be practical about this. We're going to put this in play and uh, go from there. Basically, it's a pause. We need this pause in order for people to negotiate on and on and on, right. and, and, we and, and we, they glide over the some of the jurisdictional issues. Yes, I certainly think that's happened, but I do think like the court in McCartney really did, I think, uh, you know, uh, do go into some of those jurisdictional issues. And of course, A.H. Robbins in the Fourth Circuit really in detail tried to flesh out these different points. But Your Honor, absolutely, to the extent this court is worried about the breadth of this stay, if you don't think it's surgical, we obviously do. But the remedy for that is that very practical one, which the Judge Kaplan has already said he will do, which is to make sure and police this state to, to, for the protected parties to make sure it is the same claims and that it is justified. We're not here to try and just stop litigation for its own sake. We're doing it in order to protect the integrity of the process. And as I say, it's so important to us that entire first question is just not uh, helpful to us unless we have this stay in place. Yeah, about, since you don't get rebuttal uh, as the appellee, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to do some summing up. Great. Um, and if I could, it's just one, I want to respond to one other thing my friend said right on the other side, that. which is uh, that uh, JJCI could be spun off, he said, uh, under this, and that that would be problematic. But the funding agreement itself uh, says that if there is a spinoff, paragraph 4B of this, and this is appendix page 4239, says that itself will be considered part of the fair market value. So again, this is an agreement that evolve, that that increases in value over time as JJCI increases in value. The claimants get the upside of all of it. And if there to the extent there are concerns whether it's distributions or spin-offs, the agreement itself polices those things. And we're asking you here, Your Honor, for a limited ruling to affirm Judge Kaplan based on his factual findings. We know this is a painful case. We know this is hard uh, you know, for everyone involved. But Judge Kaplan, in the very last page of his second opinion, he said, you know, delay is something that he thinks about all the time as the claimants die. And the best way, the most efficient way to actually provide claimants with relief, both present and future, in an even-handed, equitable way that avoids the deadweight losses of millions and billions of dollars being given to lawyers is through this solution. And if you're worried about whether it's fair or not, they have remedies, the 75% vote, the two-court review vote. And that's why we think Judge Kaplan got it right. Thank you. Thank you. What we will do is we'll take a, about a five-minute break and uh, we'll come back, well, let's see, we'll come back at 4.30. We'll be out of here at 5. Thank you. We'll have rebuttal. Mr. Lampkin. <clears throat> Can I ask you one of the things, and maybe you're not the one to deal with it, but if not, maybe Mr. Frederick can. How do you going to deal with the future claimants? How do you propose that that be done? 
So, Your Honor, I think that for future claimants, that doesn't tell us what an answer to my fundamental pitch, which is it doesn't tell us whether you should have JJCI in bankruptcy or you should have. I agree. I agree. But the point just the point is that if you don't have a bankruptcy, you're going to have an MDL process. And in an MDL process, how do you make sure that future claimants are dealt with fairly? Right. And I think in cases like the diet drugs cases, they did actually come up with a mechanism to deal with with future claimants because those cases also have a tail. There are ways of appointing people in order to represent future claimants and come up with a structured settlement that will handle it consistent with due process. But until we actually have a valid bankruptcy, we don't have a way of dealing with future claimants in bankruptcy. And I think that's really where I want to start with is, look, the difficulty here is we don't have a good faith bankruptcy in the first place because the whole thing is structured to evade bankruptcy's principles. So if we undo the bankruptcy, what happens? How does this case go forward? There's two options. There's two options there. One would be that J&J may decide we're going to put all JJC on bankruptcy. And then we actually have, just like Johns Mansfield, just like every other bankruptcy in history. How does that advance the ball for your clients? Well, it then advances the ball in multiple ways. First, when it comes to the priority rules, it means that equity doesn't get paid ahead of creditors here. It means that we don't sit in bankruptcy literally dying while billions of dollars go out to equity. Doesn't the funding agreement address that concern? Actually, it doesn't. The funding agreement will increase the amount that's available to the amount that's by the amount that's paid to equity. But the absolute priority rule doesn't say go ahead and pay equity as long as you have an unsecured promise to pay an equal amount to creditors later on. The absolute priority rule says until you've satisfied your creditors, you don't give anything to equity, at least not without their consent, 75 percent of the court approval. And that is one of the reasons why it just fundamentally undermines the incentives here, because J&J can operate its businesses as before, including all the assets of old JJCI outside bankruptcy, without bankruptcy court supervision, paying equity, paying other creditors, while one category of creditors sits in bankruptcy. And I think that's the critical thing is that you've actually taken one set of creditors, injured talc victims, and put them in bankruptcy alone. Trade creditors get paid ahead of us. We're behind. And that is a fundamental distortion of the bankruptcy process. Since history, the way to do it is to just simply take your bankrupt company, if you're financially distressed, and put that company in bankruptcy. And I think the problem is that... But their point is that no claimant with a valid claim, fairly estimated, is going to be out a dollar. Now, there may be a significant delay if there is an appeal. But in the end, that full claim will be paid. Your Honor, first, I don't think the bankruptcy code says, you may follow my principles unless you give us an unsecured funding agreement that eventually may pay everybody. The bankruptcy code has structures that are meant to be followed. And if you've created your structure in order to evade those bankruptcy principles... I think what they're saying is that this is a case that's sui generis. We're not talking about the next case. We're saying that with this, you are never, or perhaps almost never, ever going to get this kind of backstop again. Not only that, Your Honor, but if this goes forward, if J&J can do this, this is actually the model for the future. Who wouldn't do a build-your-own bankruptcy where you choose, okay, which creditors I'm going to keep outside of bankruptcy and pay them right away? Which creditors I'm going to put in bankruptcy and make them wait? Which assets am I going to put outside bankruptcy? And which assets will I put in bankruptcy? Or will I just put an unsecured funding agreement 
subject to defenses like if you fail you to indemnify me, I can stop paying the funding. Those are dramatically different things. Uh, and what I, think, I think what they're saying is that, or the response to that would be, okay, the creditors that we paid before were because we hadn't gone into bankruptcy yet. Once we've gone into bankruptcy, uh, those creditors, those claimants are all going to be treated in a way in which there won't be as many strikeouts as there might otherwise be if there were litigation. So, Your Honor, to the extent that sometimes people prevail before juries and sometimes they don't, that's a function of the system that the framers established 200 years ago and we entrust the common man, 12 of them, to make these determinations and to find facts and make determinations. The notion that, well, bankruptcy might actually sort of even out the balance isn't a way of indicting the tort system that 50 states have operated to compensate victims for 200 years. But even setting that aside, that still doesn't answer the question of why LTL as opposed to JJCI? Why not take the company that was the tortfeasor that supposedly was in financial distress and put it and its assets into bankruptcy to satisfy the way it's done and before? And what we were told here is, well, the bankruptcy court looked at that and the bankruptcy court said, gee, that's going to be very costly. And it's, they think the bankruptcy court said, it's too much value to waste. But when it comes to the bankruptcy code, it's not a waste to enforce the absolute priority rule so that people don't pay equity ahead of creditors. It's not a waste. The, the, the way around that, I mean, maybe it was just an offhand comment uh, that Mr. Katyo made, but, and I'm gonna add on to it. Almost every right that's given to a creditor in bankruptcy uh, like who's secured, who's not, is something that's outside bankruptcy. Non-bankruptcy law tells you who has these particular rights inside of a bankruptcy, and that's basically following the Butner case from 79. Transpose that to the corporate area, that corporate law is not affected by the bankruptcy, and corporate law allows for a divisional merger. And if corporate law allows that, so all that we are dealing, as you say, is just LTL itself, why is LTL not in some type of financial distress, if, if that's the only one we're looking to, and luckily has somebody who's willing to come to its, uh, meet its, all of its funding needs with respect to the future of the bankruptcy. So Judge Ambrose, I think from the outset, when we say we take the debtor as we find them, when you're describing, when you're deciding good faith, under cases like the new debtor syndrome cases, courts ask, who's my debtor? Where did he come from? And why is he here? And the answer mm -hmm. to those questions here is, who's my debtor? It's an artificial entity created for bankruptcy. Why is he here? He's here so tout claimants will be in a single class by themselves in bankruptcy and everybody else is outside bankruptcy. Why is he here? He's here so that JJCI's assets, its operating business, is outside bankruptcy beyond the bankruptcy court's reach. And only, only an unsecured funding agreement subject to defenses is available to tout claimants. That is, means that you, know, you don't just accept them as they find them when you have that sort of a purpose. And I think, Judge Ambrose, that actually distinguishes the Chapter 11 rundown cases you described. When you have a Chapter 11 rundown case, as I understand it, good co and bad co are both in bankruptcy, the bankruptcy, both subject to the court supervision. This is the exact opposite. One company is in bankruptcy subject to the, court bankruptcy's, the bankruptcy court's jurisdiction, but everything else that happens 
all of old JJCI's assets as they're operated, this spinoff, everything else what, that happens. What provisions of the code, if old JJCI were in bankruptcy, what provisions of the code do you think would apply that you would want to take into account with respect to old JJCI? So for, for the absolute priority to begin with, which is not a specific provision of the code, but it's a, an inflection from history and the structure of the code where you don't pay creditors, uh, you don't pay equity added creditors. And that puts a lot of pressure on people to come up with a good plan to the benefit of creditors and not do what Bestwall is doing now and let things go for five years as people are rapidly failing. So just the second spin, one would be- uh, And I should have asked this before, spin out the absolute priority concept here. This is not like SGL where they're going to do a state court dis or a state dissolution and have all the money go to equity after the bankruptcy. What monies are going to equity during the course of this bank? Are you saying dividends? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, there's dividends and there's also $5 billion for a spinoff that was announced or $5 billion for a stock buyback that was announced last week. So and the, the fact that you can continuously in bankruptcy pay equity means that there's far less pressure to actually achieve a plan that the, that the uh, creditors can live with. You can wait longer and longer just as Bestwall did. But I also point to section 363, which is your non- but When you say stock buyback, the stock buyback is not for LTL, the stock buyback is for it, old JJCI. Exactly, and the, and the um, and a divisional merger was structured and the funding agreement is structured specifically to allow J&J to spin off assets without anybody, any of our creditors being able to do what they would be able to do under 360, section 363. If you had put the actual tortfeasor, the people funding this JJCI, all JJCI into bankruptcy, which would be, they get notice and an opportunity to be heard. And the bankruptcy court would be able to supervise it and to make sure that those assets are indeed available to the creditors at the end of the day. None of that none of that exists because instead of doing what one does ordinarily and putting a bankruptcy, the whole entity into bankruptcy, they've simply hived off one set of claims, put them into bankruptcy and taken all the assets, all the operating things, all the famous brands and operate them outside bankruptcy. Um, and the, just, I think the key thing here is Jevic makes it clear from the Supreme Court that it's just not permissible to say, I have provided something that I think is better for the creditors. When you're talking about bankruptcy, the specific provisions of the code are important. And the code here ordinarily requires absolute priority rule, section 363 supervision of spinoffs and other non-ordinary course transactions. And even 524G requires that you put in equity securities, securities of the debtor with a right to dividends. But we've now swapped out one debtor, a valuable business, JJCI with famous brands, for a completely different debtor, which is LTL. Um, and I'd like to sort of turn, if I could, for a moment to the injunction. And I think the, with, the serious problem with the injunction is this. Section 105 simply doesn't say you can reach out to non-debtors, 670 of them, and enjoin them on the basis of, gee, I think it has some relationship to the estate. You actually have to have a clear right to relief. And what you're problem, saying is that there's not an identity of interest other than the fact that it has the same corporate parent. Exactly, Your Honor. In fact, the record is very clear that you can't do this here because J&J has its own independent liability for its own tortious misconduct. 
for example, in Ingham, as we've mentioned, J&J had a higher multiple on punitive damages because, and I'll, I'll quote, because defendants' decision to chart their course of reprehensible conduct began long before J&J and CAI was spun off as a separate entity. J&J made all the health and safety decisions. It ignored its own scientists for decades on end. And actually, it worked tirelessly to make sure that industry standards would not change to make asbestos that's otherwise undetectable detectable. That's on pages 716 to 717 of Ingham and pages 5841 to 592. And it personally, individually told, um, falsely advertised that baby powder does not contain asbestos and never will. And that it tested every lot to make sure. And juries have repeatedly found J&J liable separately from JJCI. This is not a case of derivative liability. It is an instance of independent liability. For example, HFREA in California, 97.8% of the liability was, a, was given to J&J, not JJCI. If you look at page, the verdict sheets on page 45532, 4592, and there's a summary at 4704 and 4627, they are regularly ha giving more liability to J&J than JJCI. This is not a case of derivative liability where J&J, because it's the corporate parent, has some liability. This is J&J's own misconduct. And when one is going to enjoin that type of liability, you, you need more than what the court came up with here. Um, for example, and even 524G, if you want a channeling injunction, it says the channeling injunction and combustion engineering addresses the specific issue. 524G says when you have a channeling injunction, it applies only to the debtor. And you can go beyond the debtor when the liability is derivative because it comes from there's corporate relationships. But the liability here isn't from corporate relationships. It's, liable, it's liability for J&J's own misconduct. And so you couldn't get a channeling injunction under 524G for the liability of J&J. Why under 105 or on a preliminary basis are you going to give that injunction and prevent tout claimants from actually getting satisfaction waiting, when waiting for the possibility of a 524G plan? It simply doesn't make sense. It takes those statutory provisions and it sets them on their heads. And the net result is there's simply no ability of tort claimants to, co to come forward and have any ability to pursue a reasonable plan here because they're frozen in their tracks. J&J, it's got all the liability against it frozen. 650 other people, that's frozen. LTL, our made for, our made for, our made for bankruptcy debtor, frozen as well. What is the leverage they have? Nothing. It simply shuts everything down. And you can't do that under 105. You can't do that under 362A when it is own independent liability. And there's a key provision here that I don't, a uh, key finding by the district court that I don't think I heard Mr. Katyal mention. And it is this. The district court found, and this is again 159, that the shared identities of interest were based on allocation of agreements to the debtor. That means indemnification agreements that they had off and gave to the debtor shared insurance agreements that they gave off to the debtor on the eve of bankruptcy, quote, for the very purpose of extending the stay. That is an effort to create equity through agreements on the eve of, uh, of bankruptcy. And that doesn't work for two reasons. One is combustion engineering saying you can't buy agreement, establish jurisdiction. But it also doesn't work as a matter of equity. As a matter of equity, two parties can't enter into a contrivance, an agreement on the eve of bankruptcy, and therefore say, aha, we now have a right to injure third parties and prevent them from pursuing 
other parties that have their own independent liability. Ultimately, the problem here is that J&J decided to take a corporate shell, LTL, and put it into bankruptcy. But then it turns around and says, now that we've put this corporate shell into bankruptcy, we want an injunction that protects not just the corporate shell, but protects us from our own independent liability, that protects retailers from their own independent liability, that protects everybody from their own independent liability. But that's completely topsy-turvy. If we're going to accept putting LTL in bankruptcy, the automatic stay and any possible standard 105 would extend to just LTL. It wouldn't extend to everybody else. But we really shouldn't be saying we're going to accept LTL as our debtor here because the very purpose of putting LTL into bankruptcy was to make sure that TAL claimants were treated differently or were treated differently. I know one of the questions that came up here was, well, how do we determine? What if it was you know, 1994 when they did the divisional merger? What happens if it was 1979? And I think the short answer is twofold. One is, in this case, it was two days before bankruptcy. In this case, we know exactly why it was done. It was done to manipulate the bankruptcy. It was done to make sure that it was structured in a way where JJCI would be out of bankruptcy and or its assets would be out of bankruptcy and only telecoms would be in bankruptcy. And that provides a, a very clear answer alone. So it's not just a matter of time. It's a matter of what the purpose was. If we look back and we have a non-bankruptcy purpose for years on end that says, yeah, we've established this, this as a meaningful way. We've not only given them liabilities, we've actually given them a business and they're operating that business for years and they're building up assets and goodwill. And it's a real company and it's operating. That's a very different scenario from saying, we've now created a company solely for the purpose of bankruptcy. We've given it all the liabilities for just one set of claimants. And we've done it for the purpose of keeping certain assets out bankruptcy so we continue to pay dividends, continue to operate the brands, and continue to do so without the bankruptcy court supervision that would otherwise be. Indeed, what you just said, that's your principal theme, isn't it? That, that is my principal theme, Your Honor. I think that that really sums up the problem here. I think, and, and in addition, I think I should also stress, like, in the end, it can't be both that it's all right to put LTL in bankruptcy and then to extend the injunction to everybody else. If by definition, you just end up going way beyond all party, uh, the parties specified by 362, okay. the normal under 105. Okay. You understand. Thank, Thank you, Your Thank Honor. You. I appreciate that. If there's no further questions. No further questions. Uh, I know Mr. Frederick reserved some time. Mr. Janda, did you have anything further to say? Uh, I did not reserve any time, Your Honor, but if you would like to hear from me. Yeah, I'll give you two minutes. You want two minutes? It's your call. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, just have three points I'd like to make real quickly. Uh, so first is, you know, I've heard a lot of talk today about what system, um, tort system or the MDL system or the bankruptcy system is better for which set of parties, current claimants, future claimants, defendants. Um, and I think the point here is just that there, there's a very complicated, um, admittedly, balancing of interests um, of trying to get claims resolved efficiently, um, to get claims resolved correctly, uh, to get claims resolved equitably, uh, and to ensure that people are able to exercise uh, the rights that they have, um, their constitutional rights, their due process rights, their jury trial rights. And, and that complicated balancing of interests has been done by Congress. Congress has enacted a number of different um, aggregation mechanisms uh, and has enacted the bankruptcy code. Uh, but the bankruptcy code uh, Congress has enacted and provided strong tools to defendants only in a limited set of circumstances. Uh, as this court said, uh, those strong tools invite abuse. Uh, and it's really up to the courts to police the um, boundaries of that system to ensure that it's not being used uh, for reasons that Congress didn't intend it to be used. And I don't think 524G changes the analysis in any way. Um, 524G presupposes you have a valid bankruptcy, um, and Congress has determined that 524G 
uh, provides an appropriate tool in bankruptcy uh, once you have a bankruptcy to make sort of the best of a bad situation. But I don't think you can sort of bootstrap your way into bankruptcy to try and take advantage of the tool that presupposes the valid bankruptcy in the first place. Um, second, just very quickly on financial distress, uh, I heard my friend on the other side say two things that I think together uh, could resolve this case on their own. I mean, one is that he says LTL um, is the appropriate entity, and two is that in his view, um, or in LTL's view, the total legitimate value of all of the current and future tort claims against it is less than $61 billion, which it has access to under the funding agreement. You, you put those two things together, and I don't see how you can make any argument that there is a legitimate financial distress here on the part of the debtor. Um, it, it justifies invoking bankruptcy, uh, maybe ever, and certainly not at this point. And then third, just uh, very briefly, you know, as we said, bankruptcy provides a lot of tools. Uh, it's a very strong medicine. Um, it curtails creditors' rights in significant ways, um, including allowing uh, debtors to bind non-consenting creditors, um, possibly many, many non-consenting creditors, to a one particular resolution. And, and that is appropriate uh, when you have a debtor facing financial distress that needs that time to reorganize its affairs um, or, or to pursue an orderly liquidation. But, but it's not appropriate every time you just have a lot of tort claims against an entity um, when those preconditions aren't met. Um, and, and that's just the case here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Mr. Honor. Frederick, I know you reserved three minutes. We'll give you five. <coughs> Since you're batting cleanup. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Your Honors. I, I want to start with the trilogy of Third Circuit cases because um, the main point made on the other side was that they didn't confront mass torts, but the SGL Carbon case in announcing why the good faith standard was so important had an extensive discussion of Johns Mansville. And the point that it was making was that Johns Mansville had tried for many, many years to pay off claimants and it, till it got to a point where it did face imminent financial distress there, because- There was no doubt that Johns Mansville was in financial distress. And, and the question here is, is LTL in financial <coughs> distress? Now you can either take the fundamental contradiction of their position, which is the funding agreement will fund everything in which case LTL is not in financial distress, or the funding agreement depends on Johnson & Johnson and JJCI, in which case this is not a proper bankruptcy purpose because those two entities are not in the bankruptcy. Either way, that contradiction should end the case on as a matter of good faith and the court need not go further in order to decide um, how, how far it needs to go. Now, the point is made that after Ingham, it's impossible to settle these cases. Our experts said 98% of asbestos cases settle or dismissed. The bankruptcy law professors who provided an amicus brief on their side said 97% of MDL cases settle or dismissed. Common sense tells you that you don't have to litigate all 38,000 to judgment. We weren't born yesterday. And that point made by the bankruptcy court is on its face not credible and is subject to plenary review by this court. Now, the main argument that they make for financial distress is based on the speculation that they're going to have to pay out many, many tens of billions of, of dollars. But SGL Carbon says you don't look at speculation for future. You look at what is imminently before you. Do you have a present inability to meet present financial obligations? And here, LTL unquestionably did that 
two days after it was created, um, there's no serious issue that at the moment it had filed its bankruptcy, it was not facing financial distress. Importantly, Mr. Katyal does not deny that not a dime gets paid until the last appeal of the last objector has been resolved. And we know from judgments and settlements in the civil system that money has flowed. Johnson & Johnson shouldn't be permitted to stop that process. But the spinoff of, the, of JJCI, which is permitted and he acknowledges under the financing agreement, is what creates the cap. As soon as that cap is done, there is no greater value that can be done. And for that reason, their plan is not consistent with the statute 524G that says you have to have an evergreen source of continually growing assets and money to pay the future claimants. This plan undisputably does not do that. Now, he takes me to task for saying that Ingham was paid by Johnson & Johnson. Look at the appendix, page 6379. It was paid out of a central account. He eventually acknowledges that. The point is, Johnson & Johnson charged back to JJCI as an accounting matter. Now, this wouldn't be, um, this might be important if JJCI had its own independent shareholders. It is a wholly owned subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. But Johnson & Johnson wanted to be able to say that its continuing streak of paying higher dividends year after year has continued, and so it fobbed off the accounting um, uh, deficit to JJCI. I don't know why that should warrant good faith in a bankruptcy. Um, now, he says that there are real limiting principles here based on the facts. He talks about the latency. That's true for all um, asbestos cases, not just those that are created out of talc. And it is true of many mass torts as well. He says there's lottery style, but that's true in any case where there are really good lawyers who know how to try cases and there are really bad lawyers who don't know how to try cases. And you have the special problem of specific causation, which um, is, evident, is an evident problem and issue in establishing the uh, uh, legitimacy of any person's claim. Their fundamental problem with their 524G is that they don't create an evergreen funding mechanism. And when he talks about the 79 transfer of liability, he doesn't respond that J&J &J itself was engaged in reprehensible conduct for which people have found them to be liable. Now, the last point I'd like to make is that Johnson & Johnson did not go to all this trouble in order to pay claimants more money. They went to this trouble to pay claimants less money more slowly. The civil system is designed with whatever flaws that it has to promptly move along cases and not to stop and stay all action. This particular bankruptcy is intended to benefit non-debtor affiliates. It is a litigation tactic to stop civil litigation, and there is no increase in value to the creditors, the tort claimants. And for all of those reasons, we urge you to reverse the bankruptcy court. Thank you very, very much. I would ask that a transcript be prepared of this oral argument and just put the cost half this side, half that side. And I would also like to thank counsel for extremely well-presented arguments, not only today, but in your briefing. And also, I should broaden that to thank those who took time to write the amicus briefs. Very helpful. 
uh, on both sides, and uh, we'll take the matter under advisement. Thank you. It's a privilege having you here. Thank you.